The Koigig Pod. I think all the concerns that we have obviously being that middle tier are very valid considering just how much we benefited from playing teams of a higher calibre going into our qualifiers. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. Tuesday the 15th of November 2022 and very good morning to OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Myself and Kathleen this morning. Good morning Kathleen McNamee. Good morning Shane, how are you doing? Keeping well, keeping well. Um, I mean the back pages are just dominated by one man, Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm shocked, I thought yeah. we'd all have gotten over this by now. <laughs> uh, this is just good and it's going to drag on, I like the way the Piers Morgan guys have decided to release this yeah. Wednesday but they know exactly what they're doing as well because they know they have absolute gold and even if they put out like the best stuff on Sunday evening yeah. everyone's going to be tuned in like I have no interest in Ronaldo whatsoever I never do and I actually hate myself that every time I see I a clip come up I'm like is there something new I gotta in this? watch it I gotta watch it every clip that comes up and it's drip feeding it is like little um, like you're following TalkSport on their social media last night and there's just tiny little clips coming up every now and again he's like oh what's he talking about, talking about now um, and literally everyone has something to say on it as well that's yeah. the thing like ex-players are coming out of the woodwork to talk about it you have the reaction of like the Wayne Rooney's and the Gary Neville's that he was talking about you have the player reactions which we saw the video with yeah. Bruno Fernandes uh-huh. I mean this is the be- this is I, the best part of it yet. This is what I want to know your reaction to this, this because uh, as a United man, you must. <laughs> so you'll see the video playing as we're talking here. But just as they met up for Portugal duty, the little awkward uh, moment where Bruno comes up behind Cristiano Ronaldo, pats him in the back. Ronaldo almost is preempting. He knows it's Bruno Fernandes. Turns around immediately, is shaking his hand. Bruno obviously says something to him. Yeah, um, and it's not even a away. proper shake. It's like that. You know that limp fish handshake it is that a you limp get fish. where someone kind of look like... at the turn. He turns around a second time. That's the moment where I'm like, what did Bruno Fernandes say to Cristiano Ronaldo there? And what was he thinking as well? Because he probably walked in, he was walking up to the dressing room knowing he was going to see him. 100%. Saw his back turned. Yeah. And like, Ronaldo seemed to be at his little like cubby hole or whatever beside Fernandes. So. They'll have both been thinking about what they were going to say in that moment because Bruno Fernandes is, oh look, it's frosty. It gets worse every time I see it. So frosty. <laughs> like the handshake from Ronaldo and then Bruno obviously says something, enough for Ronaldo to to rebut and say essentially he looks like he's, he's saying what did you say Yeah. and Bruno turned around again and he looks like he's repeated what he said the first time yeah. like just to hammer it home like he's obviously a Portuguese t- teammate of his but uh, Diogo Dallo I know is, is someone who's quite close to Ronaldo in that United squad uh, going over to his house for dinner and that sort of thing he'd be a closer friend than Bruno Fernandes might be um, Bruno's a United loyal you know he's worn that captain's armband so I don't think he'll have appreciated the yeah. way in which Ronaldo has, has conducted himself. Because the team only learned about it, what was it, when they were flying back after the game? Yeah, after the full match, yeah. essentially. Which, I mean, again, takes the headlines away from what should have been a positive 24 hours for United. They've got a win. raging if you're a Garnacho as well. Garnacho like, like, uh, This week, everyone should be talking about him and say having the Ronaldo comparisons and me like, oh, isn't he brilliant? Yeah. And instead, it's all this rubbish. It's just ridiculous. He has disgraced himself Ronaldo and the only people now defending him really are Graham Souness and the Ronaldo fanboys yeah. uh, and, and, and that's uh, there are a lot there of those there are a lot of them <laughs> there are a lot of those and, and but they're not necessarily Manchester United fans they're CR7 fans yeah do you know that they're just into the man as, about, as opposed to the club like and, and I was just reading like I mentioned it before you came on air to yourself like Graham Souness comments in the the mail uh, so United sent mixed messages so I do have sympathy for him and like 
I don't know where Graham is getting his opinions from at the minute. But like, nowhere good is all I can say. It's just not good. He's like um, United two 0 up home to Tottenham, and he asks him to go on with a few minutes remaining. What does he want in two minutes? I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, if a manager wants to bring a player on for two minutes or twenty minutes or an entire game. That's his prerogative. Yeah. He's the manager. And it's the player's prerogative after the match to go to the manager and be like, hey, you put me on for two minutes. I was a bit upset about yeah. that or whatever Grand. it is. Grand. Grand. But like, don't but come on. Whole... The, th- the thing that got me about the video was honestly the part where he started like giving off about the chefs and that they hadn't changed since he was there when he was 20. I mean, and I was like, does that not show like a good legacy in a 100%. club that they keep people? And fair enough. Maybe. A bit of loyalty which Ronaldo could learn about. <laughs> Jesus. Like, fair enough, you might want to update the menu or whatever it is, but, like, that's not the chef's fault. Like, that's someone going to the chef's and saying, Honestly, hey, we're like, going to try out some new nutritional food or whatever it is. Picking out little things like that, and he goes, um, the player took his punishment after refusing to come on against Tottenham. He was consigned to the development squad where his conduct was exemplary. How do you know? You're not in there. Like, you're not in Carrington. Like, Graham Souness doesn't have a clue here. Um... Look, I know he's, he's, he's trying to stay firm in his uh, Ronaldo defence because he's, he's at least being consistent. Mm. Um, he's always been defend, defensive of Ronaldo. Rio Ferdinand was on his podcast yesterday and even he was saying, I can't can't defend this. Uh, like, I saw he was having a bit of, I don't even know if it was beef with Carrier on Twitter as well. Trying to get him on yeah. as well. Which actually, it would have been interesting in fairness. Like, It's just... And look, every single columnist and every single person who has an opinion on, on sport or football, like this is in the news headlines. Like he, he, Columnists who don't write about sport or football or even care who Cristiano Ronaldo is are writing about him today. But even we're both saying that like we're so tired of it, yet so interested. We spent the first five minutes of the show. Yeah. And, like We're still... But as, we have to. It's, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's all... all up, like Any of my mates are into football or sport, it's all they're talking about. Oh, even like most of my friends aren't into football at all. Like Couldn't care less about sport. And I've never had so many messages of people yeah. being like, what's going on? This is, seems like really ridiculous. Are we right in saying that this is ridiculous? And yeah. I'm like, yes, no, you are. His only, like, the only views I think that, and, and some United fans will, will acknowledge and be glad that he's come out and, and been critical of the Glazers. Mm. Uh, but it's quite damaging for, a, for a, your, your multi million pound star to have come out and, and said this about the. Like, he says but the he funny thing is, because of the way he's gone about it, it actually hasn't been that damaging to the Glazers. Yeah. Like, he could have really got in on the Glazers and really took them to task and the fans would have got behind him yeah. and maybe there would have been some changes around United. But because of the way he's done it, no one's talking about the Glazers. Yeah. No one's talking about all the issues that there actually are 100%. at United. If he'd just come out and done a 10-minute interview on the Glazers and why they're they're a cancerous thing for United, then that, that people would be like, okay, understandable. But he's just thrown the boot in. When you're talking about the, the chefs and you're talking about Ten Hag and you're talking, you're just picking on every little thing at the club that you don't like. Uh, I don't know. It's like the whole thing is just... Even it, like Radnick being like, I didn't know who he was. I had no respect for him. Like, Radnick was a fairly well-known he name. Was. How do you not know who he is? Well, he if took you're... Schalke to a Champions League semi-final, did he not? Yeah. I mean... Uh, Ronaldo is, has really hit the self-destruct button in a in a really bizarre way and look it's obvious that he, he wants out I think he'll come back to United after the World Cup it's going to be really really awkward I would love to be a little fly on the wall in that dressing room yeah. when he walks in the it door it won't last long it won't, like, whether he whether he plays for United again I don't know um, but that's the thing like, does Ten Hag let him back in the dressing room like what do you do in that situation you've got to, you've got to it's got to be a power play you can't you can't have someone in the dressing room who's, t- who's doing interviews like this saying he's no respect for the manager. No respect for the manager. I mean, of all things to be saying, you cannot come out saying this sort of stuff. I don't know. Like, And it is kind of sad because United fans will have been 
buzzing after that Fulham game, after the World Cup with three points against a really informed Fulham team. Garnacho, the, the an exciting young superstar, possibly 100%. in the making. Yeah, like there was whatever so, narrative was you want to put on it. <laughs> so much to be excited about. Mm. Um, I, I like he's calling United a marketing club, and the Glazers don't care about the club. All of which United fans will agree with. I think absolutely. Like that, that that's fine. But like Jimmy Carragher's made the point that he wants to be sacked at this stage by United, and he's doing everything within his power to be sacked. Um, I just don't know if they, like. It tarnishes his legacy. It, it's it, look the o three to o nine version of Ronaldo at United was special, and United fans will always have that. But I think it's certainly tarnished it. Oh yeah, it's going to be hard. I mean, I'm one of those people. As I said before, I've never liked Ronaldo. I've never liked the legacy that he has had. I can totally yeah. accept that he's a brilliant footballer, but as a human, as being. a human, I've had my questions. This only adds to it in my eyes, and I. I just don't understand what his play is because I understand that he wants to get fired from United. That's very, very obvious. But what club is going to want him now? Like, I, yeah, the, it, fair point. It has to be a lower level club. Like, you're not going to go to one of the the big clubs with all these big personalities, big managers, unless there's someone out there that he gets on really well with. Yeah. And it's very clear already that that's not the case. Because if that was the case, he would have been snapped up during the summer. Like yes. United have already said, we wanted to let him go, but we couldn't find anyone to take him that was happy. It's so like, is he just planning to go to China or Saudi or somewhere like that and payday. get his money? And but his ego doesn't want that either. No. Like he wants European football. All the the back page of the Irish Daily Mail saying uh, United moved to Dumpstar and Bayern could offer him way out. Talks uh, rumors that. Uh, George Mendes, his agent, met officials from Bayern Munich last week. I don't know if Bayern want anywhere near this guy. Uh, I don't know who would want anywhere near him at the minute, as you say. Like it's, it's just a he's a ticking time bomb, um, and, and he's just unless you get some sort of promise from him that he comes in and he's like, oh, this place is so much better than United. Yeah, like the chefs are great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the most important thing. Like I almost feel he's getting frustrated. Like he's. He's, he can't do on the pitch what he used to be able to do. Mm. And I, I almost feel like there's maybe an element of him that, that's frustrated at that and taking his frustrations out on on everything but himself. He can't accept that he's not the player he was. Yeah. Because his ego is too big. Like, this this guy has one of the biggest egos and in And he can't accept that he's not being treated that way as well. Yeah, 100%. That his legacy... Like, because I think in his head, he still thinks he's good enough. And also the fact that Ten Hag isn't just succumbing to him and yeah. being like oh, of course I'll play you in every game and I'll have you starting in every match and maybe not like a cup game or whatever, but sure, Ronaldo, you know yourself that yeah. we're, we're resting you for those games. 100%. He's upset that there's a manager actually kind of fighting back against him. It's madness. And he, he, he can't understand that pundits like Gary Neville and, and Rio Ferdinand and, and you know, these guys who played with him and shared dressing rooms with him would ever criticise him. Mm. He doesn't realise they are pundits, they have to have opinions, and they're allowed to have the opinion that Ronaldo hasn't been good for United or hasn't been the player that he that he should have been for United this season. Like they're allowed to have the like the, the And they definitely could have gone a lot harder on him as well. Like I think yeah, they probably have held back at times because, because they played with him. Because they played with yeah. him. Some comments coming in from this as well. Uh Noel said, Is Shane personal friends with Fernandez? Why call him Bruno? No, I'm not personal friends with Bruno. Fernandez, apologies. We're calling him Ronaldo, doesn't mean I know Cristiano Ronaldo, the the, the man. Just, Everyone calls him Bruno. You know who I'm talking about. You wish you were personal friends with Bruno. Of course they sadly. do. I'm not talking about Bruno Mars. We're talking about Ronaldo here. So it's clearly Bruno Fernandes I'm mentioning. Uh, no, we're not personal friends. Um, I think a lot of good can come from the Ronaldo interview, says John. He's no longer a problem for Den Haag and he did a two-footed tackle on the Glazers on the way out the door. In fairness, 
that's the one good thing that Ten Hag's position here. Like Ten Hag will be looking at this going, "You're like you're making a fool out of yourself. Yeah. Like you're digging your own grave here. You're just anyone who is maybe on the fence about Eric Ten Hag because of the whole Ronaldo situation and the way he dealt with the Spurs thing um, and the way he's going to have to deal with this. I mean, it's per- it's perfect timing for Ten Hag because. There's no matches, so he doesn't have to do these post-match interviews. He doesn't yeah. have to speak for if, if he doesn't want to. I assume until after the World Cup. Um, I can't wait for like ten, twenty years time, however long it is, the Ten Hag releases a book that oh, has a chapter on all this. Ridiculous. Because I want to know like why why make Ronaldo captain? Why give him the two minutes off the bench? Mm. Why not start him in certain games? Like what were the things going on? Because there were clearly stuff going on at different stages that made him do that. And yeah. I'm like, what are the reasons? <laughs> yeah. I want to know. Yeah. You can the... play this clip back in like 20 years. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kathleen's sitting that. here with the book just being like, I'm ready, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here we go. We'll both be older and wiser. Yeah. Um, Jim Sullivan, imagine if they had a camera inside that hotel in Saipan 02. It's similar, it's similar vibes. Like, to see, to see that handshake between Bruno and Ronaldo last night was just mm. wonderful. Now maybe there's lip readers out there, Portuguese lip readers who can. Fernandez has gone up in my estimations a lot in the last week. Like yeah. the stuff he said about the World Cup. He was very honest after the Fulham game. Yeah. Very very honest. Not someone I expected to come from. No, I had no reason to base that off. I yeah. just had never really seen him talk about that sort of. And then the handshake with Ronaldo was just. Yeah. Like he gets a bad uh, he gets a bad image even during the Fulham game, like or during the uh, Villa game in the Carabao Cup, kind of running into a Villa defender and. Mm. He tries to feign, not feign injury, but you know, win penalties and win easy fouls. So he, he rubs himself up the wrong way with opposition. Yeah. But I think in terms of his interviews and stuff, and even the Garnacho stuff, you know, you know, or he kind of was critical of him in his behaviour in pre-season. I think that was Bruno's way of like, kind of give him a bit of a kick. Percent. He knows like Garnacho. a caring kick. <laughs> yeah, you could even see when they were celebrating the winner. Um, Bruno was like pushing him and like pointing at him, like, "Yeah, this is what we want." Yeah. Like, he's clearly a leader in the dressing room, Bruno Fernandez. Um, and he's stepping up to the plate. I mean, the whole Ronaldo stuff is going to put him up in estimations of United fans massively, I would imagine. Um, Anthony Ryan says, good to see the millennials in charge after that couple of baby boomers yesterday. That's a very fair point. When We're honoured. When are you a millennial? You're a millennial. It's my birthday next week. Ah, happy birthday. Yeah, You'll be back on between. 26. I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the 20s. Yeah, you can still say mid-20s, but you, yeah, yeah, that's, that's mid a to scary late. one. Mid to late. Yeah. When does it become late-20s? Well, I'm 29, so I'm, I'm definitely... I feel yeah. like 27, 28 is one of yeah, all. Okay, yeah, okay, fine. Cameron, Cameron says we're both too old for Leonardo DiCaprio now, which is a very fair point. Damn it. Um, yeah, I think it's... Did we not work out that you weren't a millennial or that you... Yeah, I think it's from 95 on is a, yeah. is a millennial. Is it? Is that is that right? I'm 96. You're so. 96. You're, you're in a different bracket than yeah. me. I don't know what one I am. No, I'm a millennial. You're something else. Oh, I'm, I'm Gen... You're Gen Z. You're Gen yeah. Z. Oh, Jesus, right. I, we take the compliment either way. Either so way. We'll take it. You're right. telling us we're young, so no thank offense. you. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I just, like, there's, there's a lot of people coming in with comments on, on this. Uh, Super Ken says, been a United fan all my life. This doesn't tarnish his legacy, in my opinion, at all. The fans are just disappointed. Time heals all. I don't know about that. I think the way in which you conduct yourself at the end. I do like, think it does tarnish, like, it... It does depend kind of what happens from here, I suppose, yeah. to a certain extent. And maybe this is a massive storm and it all blows over really quickly. But I feel like that, though. No, it doesn't. But I think for some fans, it's like you say, the people who hold Ronaldo close yeah. and everything he did with the United, they are going to The ones with the Ronaldo posters in their yeah. 40-year-old bedrooms, you know, that's the that's the ones that are, that are really upset about this. Um, 
Alan Drill says, my eight-year-old daughter and pals are talking about Ronaldo. Hope he never sets foot in Old Trafford again. Eric Ten Hag will lead United to glory. That's, yeah, that's a fair one. Like, everyone is talking about this. Like, it's just, the schools are back at the minute. The schools are in, aren't they? Yeah. Like, this is, I can imagine if this happened when I was in primary school, it is the talk of the playground. Oh, yeah, completely. Everyone's like, Ronaldo, Ronaldo this, Ronaldo that. The thing, like, it's people who aren't even interested in football are talking about it. Because Ronaldo is one of those sports figures that transcends just sport. And everyone knows who he is. And even stuff like his wife having the Netflix show and different things, yeah. you know, he transcends all that. So it doesn't matter whether you're interested in sport or not. This is just an interesting, because this is gossip. Like, it's it's literally schoolyard gossip of, that's like, what it is. what's happening in the training ground. Because we don't really know, and Ronaldo's made that point as well, and that's why he's been critical about some of the punditry, <laughs> that they don't know what's going on in the dressing room. They actually don't have a clue, mm. which is, I, I get that part. Like, none of us really know what's happening, but... Yeah, you can kind of tell. You can kind of tell who owns the dressing room, and right now it's not Cristiano Ronaldo. No, like you can't get in there. Uh, another great story in the back pages as well, and we'll come back to some of those Ronaldo comments because they're still coming in, and undoubtedly it's something we're going to have to keep talking about. Um, Crosstown Ashton United, eleventh in the Northern Premier League, so this is a non-league team, have applied to bring Haaland on loan. So part-timers, Ashton United, revealed their latest loan target is Erling Haaland. So with Norway, of course, failing to qualify for, for Qatar, the Premier League's leading scorer might not play competitive football again just before, until just before Christmas. Um, Ashton confirming yesterday on Twitter, now it's a PR, it's a PR move. It's a oh, completely is. Stunt, but I mean, I love it. Um, so they've submitted a 28-day loan bid to City. Uh, their boss, Michael Clegg, hinted they're weighing up an approach. He says, it just makes sense. City aren't playing and we want to help by keeping Erling fit. It makes more sense than him playing go- golf for six weeks. We think he'll be a great fit for us and we, he would slot in with our squad dynamic really well. Um, so Ashton's Hurst Cross Stadium, which is a capacity of four and a half thousand, is about six miles from the fifty-four and a half thousand seat Eddie had. So they've had, they've had fixtures scheduled uh, Ashton before he's what needed again. What would keep Erling fish playing against fit. Ireland on Thursday? Yeah, I mean that was disappointing for anyone who's who's bought a ticket for for Republic of Ireland against Norway. Look, you can still go to the game; it'll still be a good good fixture, and yeah. the FAI will no doubt want tickets to still fly out the door. I, like it's still a great team of fairness like it'll yeah. be a good game to go to but I, I never really get these like I know it's a social media ploy and it kind of gets you a bit of attention for 24 hours but I don't is it in the vague hope that even Halland might just turn up at the ground and be like this is funny I'll just yeah. do a day's training here or Pep could land down for a, for a session over Christmas or yeah. something you know like yeah, I'm sure they'll get something out of it. If not, if nothing else, they're, they're getting publicity. That's true. Maybe people around Ashton, the Ashton area, who didn't even realise there was a, a Premier League North club or a National League North club. Like, maybe it does something for them. I don't know. Um, Gavin Mizuno in the back page of the papers as well. Uh, can't wait to get stuck into France and the Netherlands. You keep forgetting that we're actually in the group with France and Holland for the World Cup. It's just... Yeah, it's kind of scary. Let's not let's not focus too long on it. But uh, it's like moving along swiftly, so all yeah. my nightmares don't come creeping in. The gears just going in my head there as we thought of those games. Four uh, 0 win for for Vera Post team last night. Yes, good way to finish what was an okay year for. It was for all right. Department. I mean, it was Decent. what it was. Yeah, not historical in any r- no sense at all. Not at all. Yeah, no, it was. It was a weird game because like we were 2-0 up after about 16 minutes and two quite good goals. Yep. And then there was like 45, 50 minutes where nothing happened. We were really sloppy in our passing. Vera Powell set up the team. Well, I thought it was weird. Um, and you can listen to Koi Gig for a bit more about why we thought it was weird, which will be out later today. Mm. But 
she like just had Amber Barrett as like the lone striker up the top and you're like playing a team like Morocco you know they're not pushovers by any means because like we drew 2-2 with them on Friday when we yeah. played them but you kind of think that's an opportunity to test out I don't know McCabe a little bit higher up the pitch or try like two at the top and see how it goes mm. like we just she seems focused on this thing that we can't play an attacking style of football and surely now is our time to start trying it out and like messing around with it a little bit and just seeing if there's a possibility that we can because I don't think we can go to a World Cup with just Heather Payne or Amber Barrett whoever it is playing like solo up the top and absolutely running the legs off themselves yeah wrecked by 60 minutes no goals because they've been every ball it's just kind of like a hope that one of them gets on the end of it basically yeah. and it just, it's slightly frustrating to see us still play in that negative way like I know it has in some ways got us where we are but also it's whenever the team starts shifting a little bit that stuff actually happens and yeah. I don't know how she doesn't see that I mean she's on the show later on today so you, we can ask her all those questions then but great to see Louise Quinn get a goal 100th on her cap. 100th cap yeah what an achievement absolute stalwart of the is game. this her first goal not with her head I, thought, I saw her tweeting something like that last night that uh, finally I get a goal for Ireland I think she's got 16 goals or something yeah they're all it's the first one I'm not sure if it's the first one she hasn't scored with her head or the first one that her head hasn't been involved right in right because sometimes she'll like kind of head it down and it'll end up with her feet and like <laughs> scooch it in or whatever it is but yeah it was it's such a ridiculous goal to score as well I mean she smashed it towards the net and then the defender hit it back at her and it kind of just like bobbled around <laughs> until it eventually ended in the net uh, and Kaya Caruso got a goal as well and it was her birthday so it was ah. a very nice way to celebrate yeah nice way to celebrate it yeah. yeah it was it was a strange one in that that lull in between the opening two goals and the rest yeah it was a bit strange like before the, even the possession was a bit sloppy and Considering what, what Morocco were fifty-two places or something below them in the rankings, yeah. rankings don't I mean, like, much. But yeah, but see, that's the thing. Like, especially with women's football, I feel like the rankings are always such a poor judge of like how a team actually plays. Fair. Because you know, Morocco did come second in Afghan. They, yeah. they beat Nigeria. It was on penalties. They do have some good players. I think sometimes the rankings are very. European focus mm. and they don't do a lot of justice to like the South American teams, yeah. the African, the Asian teams. Um, and uh, even just the way the competition structure is set up and because there is still those massive disparities in women's football, it's like very hard to judge teams off against each other in the traditional sense. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, it was, I mean, this camp, it was very low-key. Mm. for many reasons um, I think that's kind of what the FAI wanted and needed for this Like because of everything that happened at the end of the qualification I don't think the team actually had a time to come together and just kind of soak in everything that happened and be together as a team and yeah. just, so I think maybe this was almost like a recuperation sort of time for them with some games attached I don't think we learned anything massive from it at all Yeah, I think it was more just about getting the team together and Get have the last game done. Yeah, get the yeah. last game done. Have that sort of mentality. Have something nice like Louise Quinn getting 100 caps. Yeah. I mean, she's so respected in that team. We were talking about it yesterday on the show, like when Katie McCabe was given the armband, Louise Quinn was kind of the person who was in line to get it. And obviously she didn't. And she's talking quite openly about how hard that was for her at the time. But McCabe always talks about how much she helped her during that time and mm. she was the person she went to with any questions and it shows an incredible selflessness to 
be able to set aside your own personal hurt over maybe not getting something like the captain's armband yeah. and help the person that comes through. So it's fair. Louise Quinn is very much a, a woman for the team and a 100%. woman for Ireland. Proper leader, proper yeah. leader in the team. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Vera Pau. I should uh, give everyone a heads up on, on what's coming up uh, across the rest of the show between now and uh, half past nine this morning. So uh, we've got loads. So Vera Pau, we mentioned at nine o'clock or so, Vera is going to be on with us, the Republic of Ireland women's manager. So we'll, we'll reflect on that Morocco game and talk it through uh, in detail with her. And of course, like I said, it was the last game. It's actually the first game, I guess, of the World Cup preparations. You can look at it two ways. Uh, it's a long way until the World Cup, but still, it's the start I mean, of the... you look at the autumn nations at the moment, like we're talking about it as prep for the World well, Cup. Well, it's true. And so the World Cup enough. is like a year away. Yeah, so yeah. I think we do this anytime when there's like a year <laughs> run into a World Cup. Start of the process. We just get excited as a nation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll have, uh, we'll have Chris Medland uh, very shortly with uh, with us on OTBAM uh, talking Formula One. Uh, <laughs> lots of juicy, juicy stuff coming out of the uh, the Grand Prix in Brazil at the weekend, including Max Verstappen not letting his good teammate Sergio Perez by. Uh, we've got Jerry Thornley from 10 past eight or so talking rugby we'll uh, of course discuss Andy Friend uh, the announcement that he's to leave Connacht and of course take a look ahead to the Australia game this weekend as well and reflect on Fiji for one last time the sports pages uh, as well from about half past eight we've got Mike Carlson then around 8.50 or so loads of interesting talking points from the NFL um, including the Buffalo Bills versus the Minnesota Vikings at the weekend what a cracking game that was uh, the Vikings uh, I mean they're, they're sneaking up on everyone. No one had fancied them at the start of the year, but uh, here they come. And then, as I said, Vera Powell from around uh, uh, five past nine. So we'll talk with the Republic of Ireland women's team manager. Uh, but now at uh, 7.55am on OTBM this morning, it is time to say a very good morning to the Formula One broadcaster and journalist Chris Medland. Morning, Chris. Guys, how you doing? We're keeping well. We're keeping well. We were talking about the Cristiano Ronaldo controversy uh, for most of this morning so far, but uh, there is a little bit of controversy as well in, uh, in Formula One out of the, uh, the Grand Prix in Brazil at the weekend. Um, Max Verstappen I mean Jesus Chris what's going on here it, like for, for people who maybe aren't aware of what happened what did happen because essentially Sergio Perez has been the stalwart for Max Verstappen helping him out left right and centre dragging him to a, to a, to a world cha- to a world championship last year not really dragging him but, but really giving him a helping <laughs> hand by, by blocking off Lewis Hamilton at different points uh, and Max didn't return the favour at the weekend yeah, pretty much in a nutshell. Um, I think the first thing to say is that Max has been the dominant driver at the two for uh, the last two seasons. And, and in some ways, you could say he hasn't always needed help. But whenever he has needed or the team have felt it was the right thing to do, uh, Perez has abide whatever the kind of ruling is that's come down from the team orders. Then we're now in a position where Perez is fighting Charles Leclerc for second in the Drivers' Championship, which is... I mean, it's not the, the greatest accolade that any driver wants, but it's better than nothing. And, uh, and Red Bull have never had both drivers finish first and second in the season. So that's what they want to try and achieve. And Perez was running pretty strongly in Brazil and then was having a tough time towards the end of the race. Uh, and he was down in sixth place. Verstappen was recovering from incidents earlier on, was seventh with just about five laps to go, catching Perez. Uh, no threat from behind. So Red Bull said, OK, Max can go ahead and try and chase the cars in front. And if he can make further positions, great. But if he can't, then he'll give the place back to, to Sergio. And on the final lap, he was reminded that if you can't overtake, it was Fernando Alonso who's trying to pass, uh, then you're going to have to give the place back to Sergio. And he, he didn't do it. Um, as soon as the race was over, the team asked him on team radio what had happened. And he said, I've, I've given you my reasons already. I've told you before I wouldn't do that. Um, and I stand by them. Uh, and he was very angry that the team had put him in that position. So uh, it seems to have been an underlying issue where Max had long since informed Red Bull that uh, that he wasn't going to obey any team order that he was going to get. 
uh, and he wasn't going to give up a position to Sergio. One thing that was quite interesting was the way Max overtook Sergio during that race was a pretty robust and solid move. It, it didn't look like Sergio just moved over for him at that time. So I'm not sure how clear the message had been to Sergio, uh, whether he'd been told Max won't overtake you or whether he'd been told, yeah, he will. But um, yeah, Sergio had been expecting that place back and didn't get it. It was a bit like the, the, the wording, even when you're listening to the team radio, Chris, on, on that last lap. Um, so Verstappen asked again on the last lap to let Perez through and the reply um, so he replied that he told the team he, he wouldn't previously are we clear about that I gave my reasons and I stuck by it he wouldn't really elaborate in the in the, uh, the post-race interviews as to what he meant by that but, but that phraseology Chris are we clear about that like who's in charge here the driver or the team well, that's that's a big part of this is that um, there's a bit of a power struggle going on there at Red Bull anyway. It, it's always been a bit of an interesting setup because you have Helmut Marco who calls a lot of the shots around the drivers, but then you have um, Mac, uh, Christian Horner as the team principal. So uh, Horner kind of controls other aspects of the teams and those two almost have a bit of a power struggle between the two of them. But now Verstappen knows he's, you know, he's the top dog there in terms of the driver. He's the star man that they've got under contract for a long, long time and he wants the team to kind of work the way he wants it to work. And it seemed to stem from something that happened earlier in the year. Now, there's a lot of talk about an incident where uh, Sergio Perez crashed in Monaco during qualifying. Uh, and I, I, to me, it, it seems quite actually far-fetched that it would be legitimately because he did that on, on purpose. But if it was something to do with that, there's been a trigger point that's un- upset Verstappen. That means he feels like Perez doesn't always help him and he wanted to make a point uh, and up to now he hasn't actually had to they haven't had a situation where he's been asked to move over for Sergio so uh, what was strange for me is that Max was so firm about it as you say with that wording with that approach for sixth place it was over sixth and seventh Red Bull weren't the quickest team in Interlagos Max had a tough race you know the, the, the win wasn't on the podium wasn't on it was genuinely over two points and the championships already wrapped up so it felt like the wrong time to make such a firm stance uh, and to really ram it home because not only that, the team and Max came out afterwards, as you said, uh, said, you know, Max has given his reasons, but they're going to stay behind closed doors. But Max made it very public by doing those team radio messages after the race. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a, a bizarre twist that's meant after a season where he's driven brilliantly on the whole, um, Max is suddenly kind of coming across as the bad guy for, for not helping his teammate. Just comes across as remarkably ungracious, like on Max's behalf. I don't know like how the... The divide among Formula One fans, you know, how they feel about this generally speaking. But I mean, I'm sure there are still Verstappen fans who are, who are kind of coming in, coming in and saying, well, this just shows Max's winning attitude and win mentality. And you need to have that ego, uh, to, you know, to, to win world championships. And now he's won two. So is there an element of that to it that he's just showing that he's a winner? He doesn't care who he who he pisses off, essentially, because as you said the, the power struggle there has has Max as the leader of this team and, and maybe Perez can't say anything about this really because he knows that Max is the main man a, a little I imagine Perez hasn't always been <laughs> delighted with the way things have been behind the scenes because he's been kind of playing second fiddle when asked to but uh, I think it's more the way that Max has gone about it just surprised me because you you can have that kind of single-mindedness and, and uh, desire to win a championship and win at all costs, yes. But again, this wasn't for a win. This wasn't the time to really implement that. Um, Sebastian Vettel did it to Mark Webber uh, quite a few years ago, again at Red Bull. And that seemed to stem from a disagreement they'd had only a few months earlier in a championship decider when there was a lot on the line. And he felt that Webber hadn't really helped him out um, at the start of that race. He kind of cut him off at turn one. And that rolled over to two races into the new season and he just ignored the team order um, to stay behind 
Weber um, when they were fighting for a win for one two uh, quite early in the race as well. So again, like the stakes were different. There was a championship still on the line then. Mm. For now, I think what most Verstappen fans seem to be saying, and you know, understandably, if if the catalyst is a, a strong one, is he ha- he said he had his reasons and he's got his reasons and. Um, you kind of have to respect that if he said he wasn't going to do it and then the team put him in the position of telling him to do it publicly, then he he stood firm. Potentially, that's a fair point. But the fact that the team haven't come out and said why, or Max hasn't, this is why it's really hurting him. You can't really have this response and then be like, well, you know, I can't take the reasons, but just know I'm right. Because how do you judge someone that they're right or not? So um, I think that's what I found most strange. Uh, the majority of fans have said that it's it's reflected very badly on him and hurt his reputation. But we've also seen from Max in the past, he, he doesn't care too much about his reputation. Uh, so I don't think it will really hurt him personally too much. Um, but it, it could have been handled, I think, a much better way. Where does the team go from here now? Because obviously there's still races left. They're going to have to compete together. There might be another situation where Perez does need Verstappen to help him out. Like, Do you think that now Verstappen has made his point he doesn't have to make it again, and especially with all the attention it's got and the way it's kind of unfolded over the last few days? That's the way that Max sees it. That's the way he said it after the race in Brazil. I mean, for anyone who does get the um, the pain of having to see me on screen, that I'm <laughs> in Abu Dhabi already for the final race, um, which is what the backdrop is. And there's one race to go. So we everyone's already headed uh, halfway across the world for that. It will be a quick follow-up. There'll be a lot of talk about it this weekend and heading into the weekend. But Max did say that he would help Sergio in any way he needed to here to get the job done in terms of finishing ahead of the clerk. The equation's simple though. You know, Verstappen, uh, sorry, Perez needs to he- finish ahead of the clerk to finish second in the championship. They're level on points now, so uh, it's a bit like uh, Hamilton and Verstappen last year, but just for a much smaller prize. And uh, I think in that sense, there's there's actually going to be quite little Verstappen can do to help. Um, but he says he will if needed. But then we go into the winter break. Uh, you know, got an off season that finally is a, a couple of months with the World Cup. Um, we'll be back in February with testing. And I think that time is probably you know, well-timed um, to kind of diffuse the situation, clear the air behind closed doors properly uh, at Red Bull's factory if needed, but also just for the storyline to die down a little bit and and the pressure will be a lot lower starting next year. So I think for the team, they've got a, a tough week coming up uh, of questions and hoping they don't get another flashpoint. But after that, uh, they should be OK that they can kind of breathe out for a while. It's funny you, you mentioned this on uh, on Twitter, Chris, as well. The fact that Interlagos, that circuit in Brazil, uh, tends to be, you know, quite feisty in terms of teammate relationships. It's not the first time, or even it wasn't the first time at the weekend where two teammates kind of clashed in in some way. Like some people making the, the point that I guess it's towards the end of the championship when things are a bit heated and there's a lot of overtaking at the Interlagos circuit as well. But it is a funny one that that there, there seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, high points of of. I guess team stress at the Interlagos circuit. Yeah, it was. I, I did find it a little bit strange, but as you say, it, it tends to be at a point where uh, there's a lot at stake. Uh, it's either the final race of the season or one of the last races of the season, uh, and it is a circuit that um, is conducive to some good racing, but also isn't. Uh, you know, it's not the widest circuit. It's not a new track. It's quite a tricky layout in terms of undulating and um, some narrow sections and fairly high speed corners as well, where drivers can go side by side. So the margins are, are, are fine um, that can lead to them. But even over the, the weekend we just had on Saturday in the sprint race, uh, Lance Stroll nearly drove Sebastian Vettel into the wall um, <laughs> and, and got a, a heavy penalty for it. That was his teammate um, when they were racing over position. Uh, then we had Charles Leclerc with the same kind of view as Sergio Perez trying to secure that second place overall, wanted to be allowed to go ahead of his teammate Carlos Sainz uh, late in the race on Sunday. 
he said afterwards that it was because the team had discussed it and said they'd do that if that situation arose. But then I think the scenario was actually a bit risky. Uh, Fernando Alonso was very close behind Leclerc late in the race. So as much as Leclerc thought he was going to get given that position, I can see why Ferrari actually decided maybe not today. But again, that meant you had these kind of discussions going on about team orders. Um, we've had it in the past. Vettel and Leclerc collided, took each other out in 2019. Uh, as I mentioned, the Weber and Vettel incident was actually in 2012 and the title decided there. So um, I think Weber's been involved in other incidents with teammates. It, there's so many that seem to happen at Interlagos, but it is a great, great circuit. Um, it, it's a bit of a shame, in my view, that it's not the final race of the season anymore because um, of the drama it seems to provide, whatever the situation is. Um, and the weather can be mixed in, but it's a, a bit of an old school track that the drivers seem to really love and, and makes for good racing. So, yeah, we did have a good one this weekend. It's just uh, sort of overshadowed by the, the final lap and the Red Bull situation. Seems to be the general theme of the week, whether it's football or it's F1. <laughs> yeah, overshadowing by yeah. Yeah, controversial. Great results overshadowed yeah, by yeah. controversial talking points by people who have big egos. Is that fair enough Slightly to say? Slightly big yeah. egos. I think that's fair. Like that, and that's the point that Kathleen makes because like, we forget nearly that George Russell at the 81st time of asking is is a, is a race winner. And, and like that, that's kind of been been hidden and it's a really emotional moment for him. I know he kind of talked about needing the, the tissues out after the, when he crossed the checkered, fla- the, the checkered flag. I mean, that was quite a moment for, for George Russell. Yeah, it was amazing. I, um, I actually felt bad because yeah, I do live radio um, post-race for... Um, radio station in America and I was stood outside Red Bull trying to get hold of Red Bull team members I was watching some arguments unfold inside and I'm thinking this is overshadowing yeah Mercedes won two not not to forget as well it wasn't just yeah. Russell's win and it wasn't just it wasn't luck it was pace they were the quickest team all weekend uh, Russell won the sprint and then won from pole um, with Hamilton making it a one-two, even though he had a clash with Verstappen, so he came back from that. So really impressive from Mercedes, and I was lucky enough to grab a word with George uh, just after the race, where they'd done the team photo, sprayed a load of champagne in the pit lane, and thousands of fans were still on the track. And he stood on the pit wall, and the noise was deafening. Uh, it was incredible, like that was huge support just for Formula One in Brazil. But uh, they love Lewis Hamilton, and at, almost by default, they love um, his teammate. And even though George beat him, they were delighted for him. So it was a really, really popular win. And I don't think it really bothers George that there was another talking point because, um, yeah, he was still uh, fully enjoying enjoying the moment. But uh, it was a bit of a shame that it wasn't the only focus. But, uh, yeah, a really, really good job by him. It will be the first of many. And I, and I think it's a sign that Mercedes will, will get a few more wins next season than, than just the one they have so far this year. It's mad when, you, when I was looking back this morning at the, just trying to find when, when Hamilton had last won. So the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix last year, the madness of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix last year, that was Hamilton's eighth win of the season, third in a row. Like, if he had said that that Mercedes wouldn't win again for 343 days, I mean, people would, to- would have told you you were mad. And and even the 2020 Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix, that was the last time, like, over two years before they, they'd have a 1-2 finish again. So, I mean, remarkable that it's taken Mercedes so long to get to the top of the pile here again. Yeah, I mean, there's another stat that really sums it up that I think is incredible is that Kevin Magnussen has more pole positions than Lewis Hamilton this year uh, because Magnussen qualified on pole uh, on Friday because it was a sprint weekend. Pole was decided uh, in qualifying on Friday in Interlagos and it was sort of damp conditions and Haas did a brilliant job uh, and Magnussen put it on pole. So even though Russell then won that race and started first in the Grand Prix, technically the, the stats say that Magnussen has a pole this year and, and Hamilton doesn't, uh, which is yeah just incredible. But it also shows how far back Mercedes have had to come from through this year it's it's easy to look at them kind of making solid progress in recent weeks and months but uh, if we go back you mentioned Emilia Romana in 2020 but even this year that was a sprint race and they were nowhere neither driver made it into the top 10 in qualifying Russell had a great drive but in a bit of chaos to get into the top four but Hamilton really struggled um, to even get through the field and, and the car just wasn't competitive 
Uh, they were really a midfield team at that point. So uh, the strides have been massive, and that's what's impressive. That's the kind of Mercedes we know. They can make that sort of progress and recover from this sort of issue. But they've needed to do it, and they've kept developing this year because they've needed to find solutions to the problems they had earlier in the year. Red Bull and Ferrari have maybe focused a bit more on next year already, uh, and it will mean that I wouldn't expect to see Mercedes winning first race of next year, but I think they'll be a lot closer starting next season and really in the mix with the top two um, to the, the extent that I think you know they'll be title contenders again so um an impressive turnaround but yeah it's incredible that it, it took them so long with these new rules to get to that level it's funny that, that we're talking about you know Verstappen not letting Perez pass there was a similar uh issue with with Ferrari where you know Leclerc wanted uh, the Ferrari team to order Carlos Sainz to let him pass but I guess it's totally different in that you know Sainz got his podium you know and, and he's not really going to give up a podium finish to help Leclerc finish second in the driver's championship is he I don't think so, but to be honest, he wasn't even asked in the end. That's that's the yeah. kind of biggest difference was Red Bull, uh, sorry, Red Bull had told Verstappen um, that he needed to get out of the way for Perez and Verstappen declined. With Ferrari, they'd apparently discussed pre-race that they would swap their drivers if it helped Leclerc and they were running in order like that um, late in the race. But because uh, Leclerc asked the question, Ferrari looked at the race situation. Uh, Fernando Alonso was very quick and was within a second or just over a second behind Leclerc. So once Sainz slowed down and let the cloak through, he'd be very vulnerable and could lose another place. So they thought that it's not worth the risk. So they just replied to Leclerc and said, no, we're not going to do it. It's too risky, um, which Charles didn't quite appreciate or wasn't too happy with at the time. But he said, you know, I'll talk to the team and find out why they decided differently to what we said pre-race. Uh, but for Sainz, then he was asked uh, in the press conference afterwards when he finished third um, about that message. And he was like, it's the first, you know, I've just been told about it before coming in here. I wasn't uh, told anything by my engineer they didn't ask me to do anything so I can't really comment at the moment um, it wasn't that he was given them the order and, and said no I'm staying here for third but it would have been an interesting response because you're right he would be giving up a trophy and a podium which is you know a lot more than just two points for sixth and seventh which again brings me back to why I thought it was so unnecessary for Verstappen to make that point with those positions but um, science I would have maybe thought would have been more justified if he'd said no uh, and at the end of the day, I think Ferrari maybe avoided too much stress because of what happened with Red Bull too. Neither team actually pulled off what they were uh, intending to or thinking about doing, so they kind of levelled each other out a little bit. It was funny, like a lot of people, I suppose, George Russell was the, was the driver of the day, but Fernando Alonso's performance, Chris, uh, at the weekend, I mean, he just keeps doing this. 18th on the grid, he starts, and he ends up finishing 5th, three places clear of, of Esteban Ock on his Alpine teammate, of course, you mentioned. They had their their, their issues, um, the clashing in the sprint race. Um he must infuriate the Alpine team because, on the one hand, he's you know he's he's talking openly about how much he can't wait to get to Aston Martin for next season, but then also he's just racking up points for Alpine and keeps putting in these performances that just show us why he's a two-time world champion. Yeah, it's one of those things where we all spoke about it kind of uh, in the paddock on Sunday, and it's that could you even remember a time when Alonso left a Formula One team on good terms? <laughs> he tended to set it on fire before walking out the door, sort of thing, but. He could he could do that because he's so good. You know, he he was always pushing hard. It was very demanding, and that worked to an extent. But then, when the relationship broke down, it was quite volatile. So then he'd move on, and that's kind of happened with Alpine. They've given him the chance to come back. He was very positive about the team last year when he returned to F1. Did a good job last year. Had some some real standout performances. But this year, I'd say, has gone up a level again, uh, and is very much as good as he's ever been. But it, because he's making the move to Aston Martin, because he felt Alpine were never going to get to the level needed to fight for wins and that Aston Martin had the, the ability to do so, you could just see his mindset change. And it, it didn't take much, you know, 
he got penalised for one of the incidents with Ocon on Saturday, uh, where he hit the back of his teammate on the pit straight, and the stewards deemed it was dangerous because of the speed they're doing. They couldn't really make an error like that. It was a misjudgment. It was a mistake rather than anything malicious, but um, at that, those speeds, you can't really afford those mistakes. So he got a penalty and he wasn't happy about it. But because he'd been involved in contact with Ocon earlier that he felt was Ocon's fault, he was kind of lashing out. And, and yeah, he... Um, kind of did say that he was looking forward just to get into the final race and, and getting in the green car, as he put it. But then that was because Saturday had been so bad for the team. And, mm-hmm. and I think there was a, an element of guilt there. So he's kind of deflecting at that stage. Come Sunday, brilliant performance, as you say, um, up to fifth, You know, nearly got to fourth. He, he had a good chance of getting at the Ferraris as well on fresh tyres at the end. Really, really impressive drive. Um, and then he comes out saying, well, it's the only time we've ever collided in two years. We've always been great. We've always kept it clean. People make a big deal out of nothing. Um, and suddenly the narrative changes from Alonso. He likes to kind of play in the media a little bit. So, um, yeah, he was much more positive. Didn't mention Aston Martin at all on Sunday night. Talked about how, what a great job for the team they'd done and how great this weekend should be because Alpine uh, should be able to wrap up fourth in the Constructors' Championship ahead of McLaren, which is their big goal. So, um, yeah, his his tone changed very quickly with that. But uh, it is, as you say, one of the infuriating things about him, but it's the sort of thing you put up with because his talent's so good. Absolutely. Uh, Chris, you've been great with your time. You must be absolutely wrecked. It strikes me that it's a long, long, long flight from Sao Paulo to Abu Dhabi and it's only Tuesday morning and the race was on Sunday. Yeah, my uh, we got to the hotel here in Abu Dhabi at about 3am local time yesterday and it's now midday. So in my head, it's about 5am still on Brazil time, but uh, nothing some coffees won't fix and uh, chatting to you guys really helps to get the morning started. So absolutely. not too bad. We'll get the afternoon nap in if, if you can, Chris. Listen, <laughs> I might, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Great stuff as always, Chris. Thanks a million. Thank you very much. Cheers for having me. Chris Medlin there, the Formula One broadcaster and, uh, and journalist. Like that must be a mad life following Formula One races around oh, the world. Oh, it's absolutely mental. Like one of my very, very good friends, Nate Saunders, he's a F1 editor with ESPN and his life is just mad. Like every week, I, you text him be like, Nate, do you want to go for a pint? And he's like, nah, sorry, I'm in Brazil or <laughs> I'm in Abu Dhabi or somewhere. Absolutely incredible. He's like, I should be back in about six months when the championship finishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad stuff. Uh, fair play to him though Chris Medlin joining us as per usual reminder uh, as well on OTBN this morning that Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB each week we're giving one lucky viewer a 100 euro voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you to enter check out at Off The Ball on Twitter just like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you are in the draw Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on the go coffee experience on the road available at Apple Green today now back after the break with Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times this follows news of course that the Connacht head coach Andy Friend will leave the province at the end of the season OTB AM 17 minutes past 8 on this Tuesday morning on OTB AM with myself and uh, Kathleen OTB AM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com there's plenty of comments coming in on the YouTube this morning, uh, someone Verstappen. Like, it just feels like we're talking about the same thing. Issue. It's the same. It's the same. It's the same thing. There's just controversy in different sports at the minute. But uh, Verstappen backstabbing his own team. Ronaldo backstabbing his own team. It just seems to be a, a theme. Uh, someone on, on YouTube says Ronaldo will move to his hometown club, and you'll be gushing over the romantic ending to his career. I just mm, don't know. I mean, I don't think so. Well, you might be. I definitely won't be. No, no, I won't be. I, won't be, I, don't, I don't look. I, I have to say, when, when Ronaldo had that first stint at United, 03 to 09, you kind of appreciated what he was doing. You know, the 42 goals in one season in, in 08 when they won the Champions League and the Premier League. Um, you know, fans of Real Madrid and Juventus will look at him quite fondly from a footballing perspective. The thing is, as well, I don't think Ronaldo wants like a romantic homecoming. Like, yeah. he doesn't seem interested in it at all. Because he wants he, records and individual yeah, honours. Because he could have gone home at this stage and even just played for a season if he wanted. Yeah. And then 
maybe built up his reputation a bit and went somewhere else. But he was very firm that he didn't want to do that. I just don't know. I don't know how this goes. But then, having said that, with the whole Tottenham stuff, when he refused to come on, off the bench, I thought this could be the death knell. But then yeah. it was all handled really well by Ayrton Hag. And even Ronaldo went off to the reserves, came back, was given the captaincy even, wasn't he, for yeah. the Aston Villa game at one point. Like... It's just a bizarre chain of events. It like, just doesn't make... This one feels more serious in that he's completely gone behind it. Like, mm-hmm. He didn't ask the club's permission to do this interview, obviously. I was listening to Piers Morgan chatting yesterday on, on a couple of shows and he wouldn't reveal when the interview was recorded. That's the other thing I'd love to know. Yeah, because what was the timing of this? What was the cat- catalyst for Ronaldo to go, OK, now is the time? Um, mm-hmm. Because it, it, it has emerged that he is the one who approached Piers Morgan. Like, Morgan did not go looking for this interview. This was one that Cristiano Ronaldo got him on the phone and said I want to speak and get 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 my job like even the fact that he's gone to Piers Morgan it just, it, it, that as well like it just doesn't give what <sighs> the interview any credibility I think in you a lot of people's fanboys. eyes there's a yeah. fanboy he's a Ronaldo fanboy I'm sure he was tweeting was it yesterday day before being like oh Ronaldo should sign for Arsenal now he would do him and Jesus would win Arsenal the league and I was like could you imagine Arteta in a million years wanting a Ronaldo in his team like <sighs> Arteta has just managed to wean out all the big personalities in Arsenal yeah. and has even turned around Granit Xhaka in everyone's eyes as being like one of the best players Arsenal have ever had. Yeah. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But, you know, considering where he came from, like it's been that big a transformation. Of course he doesn't want Ronaldo. I think Ronaldo, I think Arsenal will have learned from the whole Aubameyang situation. You don't need people in the dressing room who are causing issues. And Ten Hag will realise that now. Like, there's no, there's no need for Ronaldo to be in the team. Because he's not this season, he's not adding to United whatsoever. Last season, he did score, you know, a number of fairly important goals, um, and we don't know what impact he has behind the scenes in terms of chatting to younger players. But his professionalism has been called into question now. Like I've no doubt, if you're a younger player and you see Ronaldo in training and the tricks he can pull off, and even the if he is willing to talk to the younger players, which he seems to have been in the yeah. past, then definitely there's something to learn from him. But I also don't think you want your younger players looking at someone like him and getting to a stage where they're scoring lots of goals and thinking they're great and being like, oh, well, I can act whatever way I want. <laughs> I mean, you don't want anyone thinking that in your team, never yeah. mind like someone that's younger. Even when Ronaldo came out, one of the clips in the in the Piers Morgan interview, he said like United can't really challenge like Liverpool and Man City and even Arsenal at the minute. They can't challenge for a, for a title within the next two or three years. For a player to be coming out saying that, yeah, like United fans would have been hoping that maybe they could challenge in two or three seasons for the title, you know, uh, sign some new good players, some young keep the young players like Garnacho coming through, Ten Hag, and like even if he it. did feel like that, he should have better reasoning for it. Yeah, yeah that's the <laughs> thing, you know, like I I can understand a player coming out and saying that and maybe doing it in a bit of a. I'm trying to give my team a kick, you know, in the same way when a team doesn't play well and uh, a captain comes out and they're like, look, we weren't good enough, whatever it was, we need to change something. But he just didn't really give any good reasons and he wasn't like even saying, I'm going to try and help change this. Like, I have this legacy with Man United and the reason I came back here was because they're so close to my heart. And <laughs> I mean, admittedly, the full interview still has to come out, so maybe he did say all that, but... Doubtful. Doubtful. Yeah. That's the thing as well. We still don't know what the rest of the we're just Yeah, we're just getting, and that's a fair point, we're only getting snippets and like mm. probably the most juicy stuff yeah. in some in some ways. But they, of course they want to leave some stuff for the for the interview itself. But I mean, like Bob Dwyer on, on, on YouTube, if I was a United fan, I'd want Ronaldo to be thrown in with the under-23s to rot. I wouldn't let him go or sack him because that's what he wants. Like, And that's another thing that people have been talking about, the fact that 
you know, I if, think that's like kind of the taking your nose off to spite your face. That's it too. Letting them stay. Yeah, that's true. He? And like, if they let him out on loan or something, they have to maybe subsidise his wages. And 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 I don't think they want to do that because that's just rewarding disloyalty. Mm. Like they have to either just let him go. They can't let him sit in the the twenty threes. I think he needs to just get out of the club. Yeah. Um, now I said he'll come back to Old Trafford. I think after the, the World Cup, that might just be to clear out his locker. Essentially, <laughs> like there's, uh, if he if he does go on a pitch for United again, I'd be relatively surprised. Yeah, like, definitely. It, it's hard to see it happening. <laughs> like Ten Hag, sorry, a manager he says he's no respect for. You can't pick him in a team after that. Yeah. Well, it's like, what can Ten Hag, like, obviously the two of them are going to have to sit down at some stage if he does come back to United for training or whatever. Because, like, what, what are you supposed to, or does Ten Hag just send him off and be like, no, you can't? Yeah. See, I don't know as well, but, like, contracts <laughs> and stuff, maybe there's stuff there that we just don't know about where, like, do you have to? Is that there's a frustrated contract now, so, like, he can't actually turn up at the club and perform mm. and different things? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Someone, I'm so tired. It's so early in the morning, and I I've talked so much about Ronaldo. I'm like, this is yeah. this is unfair. I hate him for this alone. <laughs> it's keeping the the kind of the, the news off the World Cup still. Like, yeah. like someone, sorry. Speaking of the World Cup, this is one thing that you pointed out to me earlier that we have to talk about the fact that the English plane oh, to the World Cup is sorry. called Rainbow. Rainbow. Two separate words. Two Rainbow. separate words. And so they've done their bit. They've done their bit for the LGBT community. This is supposed to be in support of the LGBT community. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about what teams would do or might do whenever they get over to Qatar. You had the Australian team release that really good video. You had Denmark apply to wear the jerseys that say human rights for all. Mm. England uh, England are part of the group that said they'll wear the One Love um, armbands. But yeah. name in your plane, Rainbow. Rainbow. Two words. Virgin Atlantic plane named Rainbow in support of the LGBT plus community. You, you probably won't be able to see this photograph too well, but you see the England squad who are uh, all suited and booted. They got their team photograph and they're all wearing their white shirts and black trousers and black suit tr- uh, suit uh, jacket as well. And I don't know. Uh, they've yeah they've they've met up and they're they're doing their little bit. I think uh, that's what they. It that's just it just like. I can't actually process it in my head. I just think it makes such a mockery of everything that everyone has talked about in the lead-up to this World Cup that the request from so many groups, whether it's human rights groups, LGBT groups, Mm. for support and, like, proper support. And I know, like, the English team have come out and said that they do support the LGBT community. Harry Kane's talked about it. Southgate's talked about it. Southgate did get a little bit tetchy about it towards the end. He was like, I just want to talk about the football now. I yeah, don't really want to talk about these yeah. things. But do you not see how... It's like you know, like people talk about, say, the commercialization of something like Pride. Yeah. This is another prime example oh, of God. it. And that no one turned around and thought that this is just the worst idea in Ridiculous. the world. I mean, it's only little... Tidbits of little things they're trying to do, yeah. And if yeah, if you thought you were if you're coming around to the idea of maybe supporting England during the World Cup, I'll just post this <laughs> photograph with, without comment. We have James Madison and Declan Rice, Declan doing the peace sign and uh, the English bucket hats, which uh, became a festival a festival fashion thing of the last year or two. It feels yeah, they're also they're big at football matches, especially, especially English football matches. Although shells were wearing them, weren't they? After were they? the women after they won right? the league and the cup, They've just they had bucket over. hats. So maybe it's just a football thing now. Yeah, I was at Kendrick Lamar on 
Sunday night didn't see any bucket hats. I'm surprised. Yeah. Because um, usually at all these these gigs now you see plenty of bucket hats, but yep, they weren't around that day. Sorry, the guitar stuff as well. And that's the thing as well, because that story about the rainbow plane is just inside that page that you're holding up there. Stadiums, stadiums of the shame. shame. Like some of the numbers there, so uh, you've got numbers down the right hand side of the back page of the Guardian here. $200 billion guitars reported spend on getting the World Cup ready. 18 hours worth a day by some migrant workers. One pound is the already legal minimum wage in the country and then 11 cases of ill treatment and detention for LGBTQ plus people between 2019 and, and, and this year, which is just... But don't worry, guys. England are coming on their rainbow plane. Yeah, that's all that matters. <laughs> that is all that matters. Uh, 8.27am on this uh, Tuesday morning's OTB. I'm delighted to say a very good morning to uh, the Irish Times. Jerry Thornley. Morning, Jerry. How are things? Good morning, Jane. How are you? Keeping well, keeping well. Uh, we decided to get you on this morning, Jerry. I, I suppose the, the, the news that Andy Friend has announced he's, he's leaving Connacht at the end of the season. It's got us all thinking about his, his legacy at the province. And um, look, he's, he's done some great things. It's, uh, it's not really a surprise. I suppose the end was always, always going to come at some point, but he's left a serious, serious legacy at Connacht, Jerry. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, when the news first broke yesterday, I mean... It's a Monday, it's a busy Monday, lots of things going on in November, you know, and Ireland playing Australia next Saturday and so forth. And you go, oh, Andy Friend's leaving. And you're initially surprised, then you think about it, it quickly makes all your sense. It's actually been his longest stint um, in his coaching career at one place. It's his fifth season with Connacht. He's never stayed more than three seasons anywhere else because that's, that's often the life of a career coach, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're nomadic in their existence and uh, they move around a, a fair bit. And but I just think... He needs to get home, you know. COVID was very tough for an awful lot of um, people, but particularly those, say, just talking about rugby, just talking about those who um, are from abroad. You know, they, I think Andy didn't see his family for about three years. Um, and so they've been home this summer, and I think I might be right in saying next year will be his first, their, himself and Kerry will be their first family Christmas mm-hmm. in about 10 years. You know, you forget about the human stuff away from this, all of this at times as well. Yeah, you really actually don't think about it. You know, you're you always think of the sporting perspective, but then when you yeah. put it like that, uh, you know, you need time to your family, and you need to get home and, and do these things as well. Uh, like when you think about it, I'm just looking at some of his stats. He's won 51 of his 105 games in charge. Of course, took him to the, to the knockout stages of the of the Heineken Champions Cup last season for the first time. Like when when you consider as well, Jerry, I guess the the state Connacht were in um, in 2018 when he took over. He'd had the underwhelming tenure of Kieran Keane, maybe the came beforehand, so he wasn't taking over at, at, a, at, a, at a high point. So that kind of highlights his his legacy all the more. Yeah, well, actually think of that as well, um, Shane. That he do. They were at a little bit of a low ebb in 2018. Um, the post Pat Lamb era hadn't worked out very well for them with Kieran Keane. They moved Kieran Keane on. They'd had a couple of derby wins, rising one-off occasions, but there've been no real clear um, pattern of play as such, and. Uh, he came in and he, and, he, and, and they de- redeveloped their identity as a wear under Andy Friend and the results have been pretty good. Some of the rugby has been absolutely spectacular. The, uh, the development of players through the academy, there's been an awful lot of players come through the academy. They've made some good signings, most obviously Mac Hansen. I mean, they have Bundyaki, Mac Hansen and Finley Beal all involved in the series win Open New Zealand during the summer for Ireland. And we must also remember that the reconfiguration of the United Rugby Championship probably disadvantaged Connacht more than any other team in the entire competition, I mean, they have to play, they're the only team that have to play Leinster, Munster and Ulster twice, home and away, nobody else to do that. The Italians and the Scots, by comparison, were thrown into a group amongst themselves and they played each other's uh, home and away. So it really couldn't have been more designed and more unfavorably for Connacht if you tried. And that's going to be in place last season and this season. And then ironically, it'll be, instead of having get ring fencing at 
team from each country in the following season's Heineken Champions Cup. Most likely when he's gone and uh, the RFU will have their say in the matter, um, they will go to a purely merit-based competition from next season onwards. Um, and I think also as well, we've got to give them credit for giving them abundant notice. I think Willie Rand cared for the statement yesterday. They knew this was coming as well. So Connacht got plenty of time to um, organise a succession plan. You mentioned it there, Jerry. Like you touched on the, the the number of pathway players he's he's given an opportunity to. So, like he's handed debuts, I see here to fifty one players during his time in charge. Like twenty one of those having come through that Connacht pathway system. Uh, like you talk about legacy, but to, to bring in players like that and give them experience, some managers just wouldn't do that. They they want results immediately and they won't bring through the young players. But there's so many young players in that province now that have that have got experience because of Andy Friend. Yeah, that's really true. And you know he. Uh that was something that Pat Lamb brought in, and he's re- reinvigorated even more to a greater degree by having the um, all the academy players trained together with the senior squad. So that's one uh, it's a very kind of holistic approach. The other thing as well is like he believes in the, he be- really believes in Connacht. He bought into Connacht in a huge way. I don't think it was ever his intention to stay five seasons. And something about Connacht can do that to people. And I mean, he's probably you know, he's got his camper van himself and carry it travel all over the, the five counties of, of Connacht and, and much further afield too. And he's really, you probably see more of Connacht than most Connacht people. And he's bought into what Connacht means. You know, his policy is to, you know, polish rough diamonds and make them better players. And uh, he really believes in the pathway system. And I think that will be his biggest legacy, as you say, perhaps, that he, he had so much faith in the system, stayed so long and helped develop so many players playing a brilliant brand of rugby. And the other thing as well, Shane, is he's a very popular figure within Connacht, within the, within the squad, within the organisation. Because you know, in, in your dealings with him, you just find him very straight and honest, good bloke, um, very kind of calm, easygoing Aussie. He, he's sometimes too honest in the wake of his defeat. He'll tell, he calls it exactly as he sees it. But I think everybody really, anybody who comes across him, it's genuinely like the bloke. He's, he's a good bloke, good Aussie. Jerry, where does Connacht go now after when he does leave? Because obviously he has set up the systems, he's set up that legacy, he's continued on from Pat Lamb, but whenever someone like that leaves a club, it generally does leave a bit of a hole, unless you're very quick to get someone in who's capable of picking up that baton straight away. And we, as we've seen with Connacht, like they, there is still a lot of room for growth there, and there is still a lot of room to proceed with how they want to play. Well, the thing about Connacht is that, like, the, the A, as I said earlier, they've got plenty of time there to plan because they probably already have plans in place. Um, um, and he plans to until the end of the season. There's a World Cup, so at the end of every World Cup cycle, lots of coaches come on board as well. Um, it might be that they just promote Pete Wilkins from within and, and add their coaching ticket by bringing in somebody else. They, um, they're very well connected in New Zealand. You know, Tim Allen, the manager, has been there for, I think, well over 20 years now. They've got, always had good connections in New Zealand. They've had a strong Kiwi bond, if you like. And now they've got a great... This connections in Australia through friends and others as well. So I don't think they'll have any problem um, identifying someone to come in and they've got plenty of time to do so. They're, they're, they're a well-known brand themselves now, Connacht. So I think they're in a pretty good position. I mean, Andy Friend's been there for five years. It's not like there's a huge upheaval here, whatever they do next. It's interesting that you touch on that, Jerry, as well. The fact that you know, he's really, really endeared himself to, to the people of Connacht. And, and a lot of that, I, I guess, is... And it's probably similar to Stuart Lancaster at, Les, uh, at uh, Leinster. He embraced life in the West of Ireland, and Andy Friend. And, and people probably really latched on to that. The fact that here's a man who's not just coming in to, to you know, take over a team, but he's, he's coming in to become a part of the club and, and really 
I guess make Connacht part of the community because a lot of people who maybe weren't even Connacht fans when he took over now probably go down to the sports ground on a, on a Friday night or whatever to watch them play. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was there twice this season and they were both um, near 8,000 sellouts and that was an expanded terrorist thing at both ends of the ground. This is for a team that, you know, hasn't had a huge amount of success recently since the 2015-16 triumph and has always if you like the underdog, always battling against the odds. They don't have anything like the budget of pretty much any other team in the United Rugby Championship. And when they step into the Champions Cup or even the Challenge Cup, but certainly the Champions Cup, they really are punching above their weight. And I guess, if you like, he appreciated that, understood that, and encapsulated that. And um, he, he, the fans really liked him, I think, and the brand of rugby helped as well. So that... Not all success is purely based in trophies, although the, the winning record, you appreciate it, mentioned that 51 wins, is pretty, a pretty serious achievement. And of course, the other thing as well, we must remember all this, he ain't finished yet. Um, he'll want to sign off now in style this season and do something spectacular. They had a rough, rough, rough opening fixture list, but they recovered with a few wins, got two vital wins just before the break. And um, yeah, you know, his time isn't done yet. And even some players maybe would have really blossomed under under Andy Friend, Jack Hardy potentially being one of those, like hand of the captaincy as well for this year. Some of these players would be really sad to see him go. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, Jack Hardy's definitely developed his game under um, Andy Friend. He's become a captain, a leader. Um, I think I've spoken to Jack about Andy Friend, and he really, he really, he, he loves his communication skills. He loves the clarity of what he's trying to do, but he's also kind of empowered on the pitch as well. Um, Caelan Blade, others, they've recruited very well, developed players very well. I think that, um, but like all things in life, Shane, you know, it changes the good of the rest. And five years is a pretty decent stint. We've seen Andy, we've seen Stuart Lancaster go on after seven seasons with Leinster. You know, these things happen. That's, that's the nature of sport. And, uh, you know, time has to move on and they'll bring in somebody else. And that's the way it is. I mean, like, it's hard to think that. And he said actually has been five years in Connacht. Where did that go? And similarly, Lancaster, seven years at Leinster. But that's always a good sign. Uh, before we let you go, Jerry, we should touch on uh, the Australia game this weekend. And, and you're writing about it in the Irish Times today as well. Wounded Australia, wildly inconsistent, but have capacity to beat the odds. And when you talk about the odds, I think Ireland made 14 point favourites for this game, which, as you say, is, 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 is unprecedented. Um, and I guess it's, it's off the back of the Italy game at the weekend. Yeah, and we could basically ignore the Italy game because Australia made 11 changes. Mm. They changed their entire pack that really fronted up against France the week before. Um, and they weren't lucky enough to win that game. I mean, their mall defence was actually, the scrum was good. They scored the best two tries in the game. France really won it through the brilliance of their defence and one moment of magic from Damien Penno very near the end, 76 minutes after Matthew Jalabert came on as a replacement and changed the game a bit. I think that uh, this is a tougher game than it looks. Um, I think Australia were very unlucky not to beat the All Blacks this season as well. And Melbourne, like, very contentious refereeing decision near the end when he penalised their out half burner slowly for time wasting Matthew Rinaldi and, and awarded the All Blacks a scrum um, under the post and for the last play of the game. So they could be coming here with the scalps of France the All Blacks, which shows you that they are a dangerous team. On the, they're maddeningly inconsistent. They haven't won two games in a row all season. They've lost eight of 12, but then they've had a very tough fixture list. And they'll be wounded. I think they, um, I think they could be more dangerous than the bookies think. But it looks like Ireland to win, of course.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully so, and finish off the, the November internationals on a high. When you even look at Andy Falcon, Fermini, and Henderson, and, and Bundy Aki will be available for this game. Aki, of course, returning from that seven week suspension uh, following the red card in September in the URC. And talks of, uh, of potential first start for Jack Crowley as well, Jerry? I don't think he'll start. I'm pretty sure Johnny Sexton will be fit. Um, it's interesting that they're the only two specialists out have in the squad. So they didn't, even though Joey Carby had to go back to Munster, they haven't supplemented the squad by calling in. One of the um, internationally capped out halves that are out there, Ross Byrne, Jack Cardi, when we mentioned, Billy Burns, none of them have been called in, which would tend me to believe that they're not that worried about Johnny Sexton. They'd expect him to leave the side this week and start. But that would suggest also that Jack Crowley is, you know, the misfortune for Kieran Frawley and Joey Carberry has opened the door for Jack Crowley. And he probably, having made his debut against Fiji last Saturday, will be um, on the bench this Saturday against the, the Wallabies um, for the last test of the year. So, it's been a good window for him. He's a very talented gifted player. I think Bundyaki, they've got a straight choice there at inside centre with himself and Stuart McCloskey, particularly with Robbie Henshaw out of the game as well. I think that means Gary Greenwell has certainly started 13 with the choice between McCloskey and Bundy. Aki's been in, he's just completed suspension seven weeks for, and, and he, he, he's been training with the squad throughout the month, so I wouldn't be surprised if his, he is recalled. And the expectation must be that the other heavy hitters were missing last week, you know, Andrew Porter, um, Peter O'Mahony, James Ryan. All of those will come back into the team as well and will be a strong hour selection. And it should be a very interesting atmosphere. 8 p.m. on Saturday night. I don't remember if this happened before. And a chance to um, close out a, a real stellar year when you think of the series win in New Zealand this summer and being number one in the world. It could, uh, it's a great chance to close out a great year in, in, in fitting fashion. Absolutely. As you say, 8pm Saturday should uh, add to the atmosphere as well. Jerry, great stuff as always. Thanks a million. No worries, Shane. Cheers. Take care. Have a good day. Perfect. Jerry Thorny there, of course, of the uh, the Irish Times. Uh, another good piece from Jerry in the, in the Irish Times today as well. Australian forwards coach admitting Hansen is one who got away. So uh, this is uh, Dan McKellar, the Wallabies forwards coach, who was completing his third year as the Brumbies head coach when he was about to offer Mac Hansen a new deal so he knows Mike Hansen very very well indeed I forgot about that as well Kathleen the 8 o'clock kickoff on a Saturday at the Aviva which as Jerry says you don't get too often the times often. for these games have just been strange in general back and forth yeah because like, even the Fiji game at the weekend uh, was at the awards ceremony for Koi Gig on course, Friday and yeah. I had just kind of forgotten that it was a 1 o'clock kickoff so early and yeah, I was yeah. getting a bus somewhere at that time and I got a push notification on my phone for the Irish Times live blog being like match is starting and I was like <laughs> what? It's so early. Yeah, yeah. It's because it was the, the South Africa game was five or half five, half yeah. five, wasn't it? And then one o'clock, and then eight o'clock for Australia. There's no, there's no continuity kind of, to it. Yeah, but I guess that does add to the like fans have a lot of, and it doesn't all revolve around alcohol or have to revolve around alcohol, but that will in, improve the atmosphere. The fans yeah. have been in the pub for probably quite a significant portion of Saturday afternoon. Some of them. Uh, yeah, so I feel like early evening is always the perfect time for a match. So say like four to six is kind of yeah. like your prime time because you've enough time in the day to like say get up in the morning, get a good feed into you. You can go for your couple of pints. You're not drinking all day mm-hmm. and absolutely steamed by the time you get to the match. <laughs> or like everyone around you even isn't absolutely steamed. Yeah, it's true. It's sometimes when you get those later kickoffs that people get a bit overexcited and spend the day in the pub and then you're like, well, this is a, a bit of a weird atmosphere to be around. And there has been a bit said about that at the rugby games as well. People mm. getting up out of their seats and kind of going off to get drinks and walking past other people and everyone in their row has to stand up. Um, so there'll be a little bit of that possibly on, on Saturday evening. But yeah, I think it does. It, it certainly adds to it. The only thing you'd worry it with an 8 o'clock kickoff as well is the fans coming in from from down the country, from Munster or from mm. Connacht or from it Belfast. It makes it a lot more difficult. I mean, you, you, 
like no one could get accommodation in Dublin at the minute in hotels as we all as we, as <laughs> Shane we I'm going to start crying if you Sorry, mention yeah, this yeah, yeah. it's a touchy subject for you <laughs> poor Kathleen has been looking for a, a flat to rent for about two months now yeah, if, anyone, if anyone knows of yeah, it yeah. uh, give us a shout this is a public Kathleen call a out exactly um, Kathleen McNamee you'll find her on Twitter um, <laughs> so yeah it's one of those where none of those fans can, can stay up really no uh, and even if you can find somewhere it's remarkably expensive so expensive so unless you're a Dublin based fan or even Leinster from one of the surrounding counties and you can you can drive home afterwards it's it's very very tough to be an Irish fan for an 8 o'clock game against, yeah. against Australia it's uh, just a bit of a track isn't it like for, for, for a game like this of this magnitude a 3rd November international series, series game against the Aussies I mean it should be a cracking game mm. But it's just rotten up, but not been made easy. Now, of course, they have their reasons for, for eight o'clock kickoffs. I was impressed by the ground staff last week as well. When you when you consider, um, like we had the Fiji game, we had Ashling O'Reilly and, and um, uh, Andy Dunn at the game at the weekend for updates. And the following day, Ashing was back with Graeme Gartland for the FAI Cup final in the Aviva Stadium. Yeah, I saw a lot of people giving off about the pitch, but I actually thought they'd done a pretty decent job. Yeah. I think maybe the people were more angry with the IRFU for putting a match on the day before the Cup final. Yes. I think maybe that was more than actual anger at the ground staff, but I expected it to be a lot worse because it's a heavy beating for a pitch between like three rugby matches. You've got the FA Cup final. We also have like Ireland Norway on Thursday. Yeah, like that's a and it's different sports as well, which require different grass and Completely. you know different lengths and all that sort of stuff. So I mean, the grand staff have earned their wages over the last what? couple of weeks. Yeah, and it's 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 not an easy one. And it's, I know it's an issue that's come up in the NFL as well. Is that you know pitches there's a mixture of real grass pitches and fake grass pitches mm. and all this the effort that has to go into changing pitches for, for different matches uh, YouTube someone says the bucket hats are a nod to the stone roses and oasis lads I'm 23 and I know that what's the story like well, see I think that's probably why because most people that I see wearing them are kind of at that age yeah I mean I know I'm only three years older but I feel like it's enough to bridge the gap yeah yeah we're, we're, so we're getting given out to although moment. maybe because like, it is stone roses and oasis that they're not exactly young people's bands so maybe we're just very culturally inept <laughs> sorry for not knowing my history of bucket hats but thank you for educating us we yes. do appreciate yeah, it yeah that's the important part Zed Leppelin sure. Zed Leppelin uh, thank you for your comment as always and keep the comments coming in on the YouTube, Facebook and, and Twitter streams as well 8.44 on this Tuesday morning at OTBM it is time to say a very good morning to Mike Carlson morning Mike Good morning. Stone Roses and Oasis. Now, those are kids' bands to me. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about the history of bucket hats because these bucket hats have, have really... They've made a comeback at festivals, Mike, so I don't know if you're a, if you're a bucket hat man or not, but uh, certainly no, they've, they've gone up in popularity. I'm back from the cheesehead days, you know. Oh, of course, of course. Even better. Even better. We figured it'd be a good time, Mike, to check in. Uh, we're, I think, technically into the second half of the season now um, in the terms of the NFL uh, lots of the games this weekend I know before last night's games even 11 of the 13 games finished within one score um, and there have been 115 such games in the season so far the most through 10 weeks in NFL history a lot of tight <laughs> matches and the Minnesota Vikings versus the Bills we should start there uh, so the Vikings coming from 17 points down to get this thrilling 33-30 overtime win over the Buffalo Bills what a wild game this was Mike it was I mean it had a lot and, and it kind of typifies the season that we're in because there were a lot of fantastic moments, especially Justin Jefferson making this one-handed catch where the defensive back on who's on his back had two hands on the ball and he had one hand on the ball. And somehow he managed to come down from about three feet in the air um, with the ball and possession. That was you know, maybe the catch of the season so far. But the game was actually decided on some very bad plays. Um, you know, Buffalo 
not taking a field goal when they had an easy chance at one with a fourth and goal at the two, uh, which would have extended their lead to 30 to uh, 30 to 17 at the time and, and made the rest redundant. And then, of course, they had the game won. All they had to do was convert one play from their own one-yard line. Uh, Josh Allen doing a quarterback sneak. Um, the exchange got bobbled, and Minnesota recovered that for a touchdown, which tied the game. Um, so it, it, this season has been a mix of the fantastic and the very mediocre kind of play. And, you know, we thought we had settled down to maybe three or four teams that were actually really good. And they're all mostly having trouble now. The big story last night, which is why I'm so bleary eyed right now, is that Philadelphia got beaten by by Washington. Uh, their undefeated season is is over. But, you know, Minnesota, no one really believed in. They didn't really deserve to win that game. You know, they tried hard to lose it. Buffalo's a very tough team to beat at home anyway. But the Bills tried a little bit harder in the end um, to, to give them uh, the victory in what was, as you say, the game of the season, at least until last night. And like, I suppose before the season started, the Minnesota Vikings weren't really a team that were on anyone's radar massively. Uh, but like, they go now to 8-1 for the season. And, and I guess the way in which they're getting some of these wins, Mike, a lot of comebacks, like, like it was at the weekend, a lot of tight wins as well. Like That's the hallmark of champions. Yeah, and you know they they have played well in the sense of not not turning the ball over a lot until you know, they turned over four times against uh, Buffalo, um, keeping themselves in games situationally. They get a lot of mileage out of out of Justin Jefferson. They haven't had as much out of Adam Thielen as they'd like, and um, I think I think with uh, Cook you saw last night they they would like to be a running a running team, and he had an eighty one yard touchdown run, but otherwise. He didn't have anything, um, you know, but that one big explosive play is the kind of things thing that can win games for you. And the one thing that we're seeing, I think, this year is that there are precious few top quality quarterbacks left. You've seen an awful lot of regression from the people who you assume are at the top, the, the Aaron Rodgers, the Tom Brady's, Matt Stafford, um, who kind of vaulted up there a little bit because of the Super Bowl win last year, but uh, and had a very you know good season, but he's reverted back to kind of uh, Detroit Matt because he's not getting much much support there. Russell Wilson in Denver has not done what was expected. Dak Prescott um, didn't play all that well um, against Green Bay for for Dallas, you know, and until. Until some of these quarterback situations are re- resolved, those teams, which were supposed to be pretty good and contenders, are down in this level of, of sort of averageness, of mediocrity, where any team can beat any other team. You know, and and you're going to see, I think, it maybe it's the NFL's dream, a, a level of parity where a lot of teams will be going right up to the last weekend of the season to squeeze into the playoffs at nine and eight. You know, maybe ten and seven if they're lucky. What do we say about about Josh Allen now, Mike? Because at the weekend, like you're looking at some of his stats, especially red zone stats. I saw some people uh, online certainly pointing that out. That you know, even this season, he's thrown 12 touchdowns and three interceptions from inside the 20, on track for his fewest passing touchdowns in the red zone since 2019. And then you talk about interceptions. He had thrown before this season just two interceptions in the red zone his entire career, and he's thrown a pick in the red zone in each of the past three games. So what what's happening to Josh Allen, especially when they get into that red zone? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was the play where they passed on the field goal um, and he threw the interception on fourth down. As you said, last year, he was a four, he was a red zone marvel. 
uh, between running and passing, he was incredibly efficient. People are saying he's got an elbow problem that, that's hurting his passing, which might be true. There, there may not be as much velocity on the ball a, as there was. It's hard to tell when you're, when you're watching on, on television. But it seems to be more de- a decision-making um, basis. The, the offense in the red zone has running problems. They, they traded away um, Zach Moss, who, was, who they had drafted to be their kind of big bell cow uh, inside power runner. And Allen's really their best option in there, running the ball as as well as passing it. And and it's hard in the red zone because your space is limited, so that your receivers have less room to do what they want to do. You have less time um, if you're once you kind of show a run to get to the outside where you can get one on one on the back. So I, I think it's a, it's partly a Josh Allen problem. I think his decision making has been different this year, not as good. But I think that's also a reflection of the fact that the the offense, as is the case with a lot of teams now who play more or less what we would call a single wing offense, the old fashioned pre T formation thing, which is where everyone was in shotgun all the time, but it was a run oriented um, shotgun kind of offense. And you see more and more teams are playing this all, all the time. And, you know, you might even say that when he fumbled that snap from center, you know, maybe he's not taking enough snaps in practice with his center because most of it comes from seven yards back when he's taking the ball in the air, not not hand to hand. I think I think it's a, it's a really we're in a, almost a transitional period, I think, in, in the NFL. And one thing you saw this weekend was that teams who could control the ball were beating teams who were more explosive. That's what Washington's formula was last night against Philadelphia in the first half. They had the ball for 24 minutes and Philadelphia had the ball for six minutes. If you've got a really good offense like the Eagles do, the best way to defend them is to just keep them off the field. If your offense can grind out first downs and use up a lot of the clock, even if you have to settle for a field goal at, at that point, you can keep them under control. And Washington led at the half. Philadelphia got back in the game. They really, you know, were still in a position to win the game uh, up until that, that there was a terrible penalty where the where um, Taylor Henneke took a knee. He was running to the outside, and then he just gave himself up rather than be tackled. And one Philadelphia player sort of half-tackled him anyway and got a penalty, and that, that killed the game. But, you know, it was a great game plan by Washington. They executed it really well against what was supposed to be one of the best defenses in the league. Yeah, that was a that was a really really good game last night. And you look at the the NFC East situation now, and you still have the Eagles, of course, top and at, at eight and one. Giants seven and two. The Dallas Cowboys are six and three, and the Commanders go, uh, albeit still bottom, they go to five and five for the season so far. Like in that game, you, you talked about Taylor Henneke, like threw for two hundred and eleven yards was quite impressive from that perspective, Mike. But the Eagles, I mean, turn the ball over so often. I think they turned the ball over three times in their first eight games and they turned the ball over four times last night alone. So it was one of those nights for the Eagles. That we, that's that's basically it. I mean, uh, Quez Watkins fumbled the ball on a pass where he was wide open. Um, the ball wasn't that well thrown from Hurts. He had to go to the ground to catch it, but he popped right up to run. And then when he was hit from behind, he fumbled it. Dallas Goddard fumbled on a play where he was being basically brought down by his face mask. Um, but 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 that wasn't called. Hurts threw a bad interception. But they yeah, they killed themselves um a couple of stupid penalties, turnovers, and against a team that's controlling time of possession, which is difficult to do, um, and you have to be able to turn it into points. Um that was the story of the game. We saw sort of the same thing in Germany where um 
the uh, the Bucks finally were able to run the ball, which they haven't been able to do all season. Um, they controlled the possession. I think it was 37 minutes to 23, more or less. And that basically kept Seattle in check for enough for them to win, despite only scoring 21 points. Um, and I heard you guys were talking about fields. You know, the, there was a lot of adjustment trying to go on to the to the grass in Munich because, mm-hmm. you know, like, like at Wembley or whatever, it's, it's football <laughs> grass, not American football grass. And it's it's very quick. It's it's a slick surface. The ball moves on a lot, and the players you know have to get used to that and not not slide around. But you know, in my mind, anything is better than artificial turf because it you know the the evidence is visible there. It's destroying players' careers um, week in and week out. And you know, we really need to be playing on stuff cows can eat. Yeah, for sure. I, and that that game in Germany, Tom Brady, fairly imperious. And and I mean, you look at the. Um, the Seahawks before the game, and you're thinking four game winning streak. They're they're coming into it in really really hot form. But I mean the Bucks, and, and I'm even looking at the, the games that the Bucks have remaining. So fairly winnable games uh, against the Browns, Saints, Cardinals, Panthers, Falcons. Like you, you look at the fixtures, the 49ers and Bengals. You know top defenses left on the schedule for for the Bucks, but they really really could go on a winning streak themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's highly likely too. Their their defense looked much better. Um, it, it looked it looked very slow in the past few weeks, but um, Vita Bay up front, the, the linebackers, they they looked a lot quicker, and they're not going to have tough challenges. Um, I think if they can run the ball, that that's good. Also, Brady's starting to find a group of receivers to throw to. You know, um, some frustration there, but you know. Um, he he needs to trust people, and and the interesting thing was, at forty five, I'm starting to see at least that he's showing signs of age, and where that showed to me was that Brady's a master of you know checking one receiver, checking another receiver, checking another receiver, and each time moving a little bit to give himself time to throw and also to reset. The reset seemed to be taking a little longer, and there was a pass where. If Gronk had been his tight end, if Rob Gronkowski had been playing, he uh, Cameron Brate, the tight end, was wide open down the middle of the field. Classic kind of Gronk pass. And Brady, third look, reset, zipped the ball in. But in his resetting, he hadn't noticed that the middle linebacker was sliding over in front. So the ball being zipped in on a line drive was catchable for the middle linebacker. If he had stopped and floated the ball, it's a touchdown. But because he's taking that little bit extra time, I don't think he saw that. And I think this is just, you know, one of those effects of slowing down a little in a game that's incredibly fast paced. You know, you, you have mm, two seconds or so to make all those decisions in your head and then physically execute it. Um, so, you know, all, all the sidelines, issues about Brady and personal life and all that kind of stuff to the side. I think this may well be his last season. So you're telling me the laws of biology apply to, to Tom Brady as well. Finally, the aging <laughs> process is catching up on the robot himself. Yeah, I've, been, I've been worried about that one myself. <laughs> He's human after all. Um, the other game that really struck me across the weekend, and there were a few quality fixtures, Mike, but the uh, the Colts 25 points to 20 win over the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, I mean... Josh McDaniels, a lot of talk about, about how he's getting on at Raiders at the minute. Two and seven start for them. And yet, you look at the comments from the Raiders owner, Mark Davis, after the after the match. Fanta- he's doing a fantastic job, he said. He said Rome wasn't built in a day. I mean, does this go completely against the, the thoughts of the, the Raiders fans right now? Or how do they feel, I wonder? 
That that's a good question um, because I think there was a lot of misapprehension about the Raiders before the season, and I, I have to say I fell prey to some of it myself because they had made the playoffs last year. Um, but when you looked down the roster, um, you know. It, the playoff bump might have been just the reaction to losing John Gruden, mm. um, just like the win for Indianapolis may have been partly reaction to um, to losing Frank Reich, maybe, and, and Jeff Saturday taking over. I don't, apart from making Matt Ryan the quarterback again, I'm not sure what Jeff Saturday did to make the Colts win that game. The Raiders lost that game. They're not a talented team, and that shows up um, in McDaniel's defense without Waller his tight end or Renfro, the, the possession receiver, getting Devontae Adams doesn't do them a lot of good because part of the point of, of paying a lot of money for a big number one receiver like Devontae Adams is that he has to draw double coverage. That makes life easier for your other receivers. If your other good receivers are injured, that makes life hard for your quarterback. They're awful on defense. Um, their offensive line has not played very well. Um They've been in games. Uh, it doesn't look like they're quitting. It just looks like they're not very talented. And, you know, I, I'm sure they'll give McDaniels another another season um, to try to work that out. Uh, you know, it's funny because when we were talking about the beginning of the season, the AFC West had, you know, it was the strongest division for quarterbacks. Uh, you had Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert, and you had Russell Wilson joining Denver, and you had Carr in Vegas. Well, Carr hasn't been that great. Wilson's been terrible. Herbert has no very little support uh, with the Chargers, and and Mahomes is probably the only guy there who's you know who's who he's not even carrying the team, but he, he's playing really he's playing really well right now. So that's you know that's that's one of the problems for Vegas in in this season. I also you know just like to highlight a, you know, a couple of Miami beating Cleveland easily with that 49er their new coach is ex-49ers he's got two ex-49ers running backs who combined for 165 yards at, at like seven yards a carry um to help help them do that and tennessee won again against denver um despite missing about five starters and uh, i was saying to, to someone yesterday you know you know that movie invincible with with mark Wahlberg, yeah. which plays Vince Papile, there's a game there where he shows up to play and it's like in a school parking lot or something. Uh, they're having this. That's what every Tennessee game looks like. <laughs> you know, they, they, they ought to be playing with where the people drive their cars up to, to use instead of lights <laughs> in the stadium and stuff, stuff like that. They, they just make the game so ugly and then, and then manage to win it. You know, I think Mike Vrabel ought to get coach of the year. And if he gets it, he ought to like receive it in, in some kind of, you know, like le- leather jacket was, Bikes sticking out of the shoulders or something. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. That's a, that's a, I like that anecdote. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's one way of describing it. Uh, my great stuff. Of course, we had the, the emotional uh, interview with with Derek Carr after the match as well, which we can touch on again. But uh, some really great stuff from across the weekend. Mike Carlson, thanks as always. Oh, thank you guys. See ya. Pleasure, Mike Carlson there with us on OTBM as he uh, often is. 9.01am on this Tuesday morning's OTBM as well. Uh, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio for you across the afternoon from 1 o'clock. It's OTB Gold on the Wexford team of 1956. 3 o'clock, it's Dadcast. From 4pm, we have a career retrospective with Paul Flynn. 
at 6 then it's OTB Gold as Joe meets Ruby Walsh you can follow OTB across all our social channels and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the very best in the latest sports content first here is Louise Quinn speaking ahead of her 100th cap yesterday and myself and Kathleen mentioned it of course and she got on the score sheet in that win over Morocco we're back with the Republic of Ireland national team manager Vera Pau after this yeah, it just feels something that's, yeah, can be very rare and a, a very kind of special occasion. Um, you know, it's stuff that you don't, you don't really think about when I was even talking to Neve about it last night. You don't really think about it when you're kind of going through your career, but when you start approaching the 90, you'd be like, okay, this could be something, you know, that you'd, that you'd like to have, you know, achieved that you've been able to kind of play for your, your country for, for a hundred caps and, and hopefully more. And yeah, so it's, uh, it does, it, it feels really special. It feels really special for, you know, my family as well. It's, um, you know, something they're really proud of. So they're making their way out to, to Spain today as well. So it's very nice for them. Yeah. Originally there was nothing lined up, but I just feel like getting the group back together, um, as soon as we could to kind of, yeah, you know, still we're going to be, you know, we're going to be buzzing until the World Cup and and after it. But it's nice to kind of just bring us bring us back together. Um, yeah, relive some memories and then also just get back on the pitch again to kind of we've literally everything now we're we're building towards the World Cup already to think that we're tactically doing what we need to do. Um and just start concentrating on that. I just think it's been lovely. We had to obviously leave each other quite quick um, the day after the game and get back to our clubs. And um, so just to kind of, yeah, get get the group back together, it's um, it's extremely special. And it's 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 always special when we get together and it's always it's always fun. And it's, you know, it's one of the, just the most enjoyable places to play your football. So it's just been, yeah, really, really nice. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. Yeah, approaching five past nine on this Tuesday morning's OTBM. Delighted to say Vera Pau, the Republic of Ireland Women's National Team Manager, joins us on the line this morning. Morning, Vera. How are things? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. A bit tired, but well. I can imagine, I can imagine. You had a long, long evening. Uh, we, we heard from Louise Quinn there during the ad break. 100th cap, a centurion and a goal to match as well for her. Uh, remarkable achievement for Louise and what a leader I'm sure she is in that squad. She is, and she's not the one who is uh, uh, in front of the group, but she's always in the middle of the group. Uh, she's a phenomenal person, a fantastic football player, and uh, the way that she can focus is is just an example for everybody. And um, whatever is around her, she can focus on her game, and she's always there for everybody. But on the pitch, in her task, uh, she never she, she she never fails. She never fails in a basic task. So um, she has shared a lot of her memories with the youngsters. And um, I think that that is invaluable. Um, and I'm so happy for her that uh, at this very special moment, she could score her first goal with her, with her feet, actually, <laughs> because usually she scores with her head. She's one of our twin towers. <laughs> and um, yeah, she's a, a big threat heading. But now she got her, her goal with her feet. Yeah, it was great to see her score the feed for for yeah. once. <laughs> she, she scored plenty of goods. Yeah, yeah I'm, sure, I'm sure she's yeah. she's absolutely buzzing and great great for her family and friends as well. Uh, yeah. Fantastic achievement. Um, so the four 0 win, Vera. Uh, I, I know. Look, Morocco were a team uh, a, a lot further down in the the rankings than than the Republic of Ireland. But how, how do you feel ultimately about the the performance itself? Because you started so brightly in the game, and then there was that kind of lull between those two goals and the and the other two goals. Yeah. 
Um, absolutely right. Um, if you've been at, at such a such a high last month um, and you see each other, you always have um, um, a fallback. That is natural. Um, you cannot have the same tension as um, during those playoffs. Uh, so I was extremely pl- proud the way we started. But then um, it went, probably it surprised us that we were playing so well. And um, a few players were starting to do different things, running out of the position, going to the other side of the pitch. Um, and then there comes one or two passes that they cannot give because the positioning, the, the team organization is not completely right. Hesitation comes in. And from that moment, uh, the, Mor- the Morocco players um, smelt a chance uh, to take over the game with uh, some rough play. <laughs> and uh, we were not... Sorry, we were not uh, protected for that. That's not an excuse because you will meet this at the World Cup also. That's the thing. Like that, some of that rough play, I, I mean, you, you're probably quite used to certain players like Denise O'Sullivan and Katie McKay becoming targets of teams like that when they're trying to pinpoint the, the playmakers and the really dangerous players. They're going to pinpoint those 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 players. But it's probably a good good lesson for the girls as well in that, you know, the, the, getting used to playing really hardened uh, feisty teams like that can only be good for the World Cup. Yeah, and especially to um, to be able to keep your own standard up. If we would have kept our own standard up, they didn't even uh, wouldn't even have had a chance to get to us. So uh, I'm sorry. Um, so so they were they were actually putting it on their, themselves. Mm. And uh, yeah, we we've spoken about it at halftime. It went better in the second half, but. Yeah, they, 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 the the Moroccan players just came out um, to get to get after us, um, and again, sometimes you need a little bit protection. Uh, the yellow card of Katie McCabe was just a block, so uh, it's unbelievable that all the other challenges were not sanctioned, and a block um, is then getting a, a, a yellow card. It wasn't even a foul. Uh, but that is that is life that can happen at uh, World Cup too, and you should not get provoked by it. Of course, and she had some stud marks on her, I understand, Katie, after the game as well. Yeah, the first half, um, the, the first moment that she got really angry, uh, she said they stood deliberately on her arm. She said, I could have broken my arm, and you could see the studs on her, on her arm. Is that is that something that you're going to chat to the to, to the team about as well in advance of the World Cup? Like I guess even though Katie did very well not to not to properly react in the World Cup, that's going to be so important. <coughs> you're going to have you know other teams trying to wind you up. You can't react because if you, if you end up getting a player sent off or or suspended for for another game in the group, that's when you you know get into trouble. Yeah, especially uh, uh, the the moments that you don't expect it and. Um, Nigeria can be like that. The other teams do not have the intention. Uh, but Nigeria, we know that they're very physical and very on the ball and very on your ankles. So you have to be prepared for it. And then in that sense, it's, um, it's been a very good lesson and very good exercise for us. Uh, and you've made the point as well after the game, Vera, which is quite interesting that, you know, you get dragged down to a team like Morocco's level for that middle period between the two, between the two sets of goals. Uh, and that's, is that in large part because you've played so many higher ranked teams that you're, yeah. used to, you're used to being the underdog and chasing games like that. But all of a sudden you're playing a match last night where you're the ones having to set the pace and the tempo. Yeah, that is why we put this game now. Uh, we knew that we couldn't be playing our best game, but we agreed with each other 
every single one is going into it and trying to be, play your best game ever. That's the only way you can do. So we started fantastically. Um, and then um, it's more like a surprise, like hey, we can play. And what I said, and a few step out of, and, and that is because we're not used to having the ball more than the, than the opponent. Um, step out of your, your basic task, out of your role, uh, because they think we can do more here. Um, which is then actually less and uh, it breaks the teamwork. So that's a huge lesson and that is why we play these games now. Really, really lovely moment seeing Evian Clancy coming off the bench uh, to, to, to get her get her debut and a really special moment for everyone who works for youth but also back home in, in, in Limerick I'm sure for her as well. So that's something that I'm sure you'll, you'll be keen to do is keep loading these new young players especially ahead of the World Cup. Yeah, and, and Avian has a special quality. She's hardly losing the ball. Um, re- she really need to get it in a, in a too crowded situation with all players around her. Would she ever lose it? And usually she doesn't even lose it then either. What she needs to learn is to, is to play on the higher pressure. And the only way to learn it is to be put in the games when possible. Um, She's one of um, yeah, for, for one of our high talented players. And we've seen everybody. We had a closed door game on Friday. Um, we started with eleven different players, so every single player here has played um, at least forty five minutes, if not uh, ninety minutes. Okay, so you're getting the game time in. Like, do you expect when you're looking ahead to the World Cup next year, Vera? Do you expect many changes to the to the kind of core squad that that qualified? Is there are there opportunities there for for maybe a few players to to stake their claim and get into the the reckoning? Yeah, a team is is never fixed. It's always developing and is always getting to the point that the the cutoff date and at that moment the best players will be selected. Uh, there's a few players knocking on the door with Irish passports. Uh, we're looking into that. Uh, but they really have to be better than what we have because this this group has qualified, uh, and if it's equal level, then of course this group has has the the advantage. But if a player is really strengthening the team, it is a World Cup, it is elite sport, it is top sport. Um, then of course, um, of course, we will bring her in. One area that uh, surely is not of any concern whatsoever is is keeping clean sheets at the end of era because a sixth in a row for for Courtney Brosnan last night. I think the Swedish game maybe was the last time there was a goal conceded. Yeah. Uh, that must that must be really really pleasing. The fact that you can keep the defence so watertight. Yeah. Well, yesterday we also had a little bit of luck in that. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, for my caffeine. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's amazing because. The longer you keep your clean, sleep, clean sheet, the more trust we have to make the next step in our development. And the next step in our development is that we need to be able to keep the ball under high pressure. Um, and we need to learn to, to keep doing that and to not change our individual plans on the pitch while doing that. And that's related to what I just said earlier. Um, and the, the, the fact that we could get Morocco and we could play them, we didn't have an awful lot of, of choice, to be honest, because it was so late. Eh? Remember, we would not camp now because we had used all our money in June. So a credit to uh, the FAI and our sponsors and everybody involved to make it happen that we could camp. And having this opponent, uh, it's phenomenal because... You need to see each other after a high like that. You need to make your next step after a high like that under under the pressure of not being at a high uh, anymore. And um, otherwise we would have had that in February and that's too late. So extremely important camp for us in our preparation towards the World Cup. 
a, a second international goal, I think it was, for Kyra Carusa last night as well. Um, and a birthday goal as well, I understand. Yeah, and it was a, it, it, it was a fantastic example of what we've been working on uh, for t- t- almost two years now, getting the ball free on the wing, um, whacking it in between the defenders and the goalkeeper. And it, it was a Kira ball because she's so good in that and to pick it up just in between the uh, defenders and the goalkeeper. Um, fantastic for her, delight for the team and a perfect example of the, of the fact that training does pay off. How do you approach between now and, and, and February, Vera? Is it time to, to get a bit of rest? Is there a little bit of time to, I guess, watch tapes of, of the Canadians and the Australians and the Nigerians? Or how, how do you plan to spend the next uh, couple of months? Yeah, all, all of that, of course. Um, but the key thing will be individual meetings with the, the staff and the players. Um, we have set already a plan, but the opponents are not all known yet. So we will send that out to the world as soon as it's ready. Um, but we will have a good winter program for the Irish-based players. And um, with all the other players, um, we set some individual tasks uh, and individual programs where needed, um, but they do go back to their clubs and most of them are full professionals. So there's not much space to work on that. The thing is that, that everybody needs to know where she stands, what is her, ne- her next goal and what she needs to be working on um, to have the biggest chance to step on that plane to Australia. Must be quite uh, heartening as well to see the the interest levels in the women's national league uh, here in Ireland at the minute. Like you see the the dramatic end to the title campaign with with Shells and and, and Wexford and Athlone all all there and thereabouts, um, and then of course the, the the FAI Cup final as well. There's just so much interest. And we've spoken about this before on, on the show. You know where you, you have the likes of Katie McCabe and Louise Quinn and Denise up on billboards, and you know Sky have done a lot of great things in terms of their publicity as well. But even in terms of the Women's National League, those interest levels levels seem to be skyrocketing. Yeah, it comes from from all angles. Eh? The FEI putting in all the effort to create all the facilities for us. Um, our great sponsor Sky, who, as you said, is, is so good in visibility and make make people aware of who we are, what we're doing, what kind of team we are, standing behind us on the on the difficult moments, um, and and creating an atmosphere. Of, of vibe, of future, of enthusiasm. And, and I think we both fit to each other so well. And then the fans coming out and, and seeing what we're doing and admiring what the players showing on the pitch and what they give back to, to, to the public. I think it's a whole package. The, the clubs that are, that are buzzing and vibing, um, over 5,000 spectators in Telex Stadium at the Cup Final is something that we could never dream of. And um, it's, it's just exploding. The, the, the numbers of girls playing football doubled this year. Mm. It is just amazing. And it's up to us as professionals uh, within the association, together with the clubs, to make sure that all the pathways are um, are, are created and where there's little gaps to fill that and to use the momentum to make a huge, huge step forward in the infrastructure of our sports. Um, and we're working on that. We have working groups that, um, of course, work on the different tasks for the World Cup, but also towards football development and education. And a whole package um, is lying on the table. And uh, literally tomorrow we have our next uh, meeting about that. Yeah, like we, we even spoke to, to Joey Malone, the Shelburne uh, assistant manager on the show 
building up to that uh, FAI Cup final recently and he was talking about the, the, the need to turn professional and, and, and even have compensation, I guess, for, for Irish clubs in terms of losing their, their best players to, to whether it be England or, or America. Uh, it's tough for a lot of Irish clubs at the moment that when these really, really good players are sold that there's no compensation like maybe there is in the men's game. So all of these things, I guess, need to be dealt with. Yeah, but that is uh, a completely different area, and, and that is there's people in the legal part in the, in the FAI is taking care of that, um, together with the clubs. Mark Scanlon, as head of the leagues of Ireland, um, those are questions for them because um, I don't know where it stands, I don't know the implications, and I don't know um, how how it, it can be achieved. But it is a very valid point that he made because uh, as soon as a talent is just getting a little bit uh, above the average, uh, she's pulled away out of the clubs. Uh, finally, very you must be delighted to see that I guess the impact that, that some of those young uh, players coming in, like the likes of Abby Larkin, uh, someone who you know again has another league title under her belt. So they're building up experience. She might be so she's so so young and yet uh, really really racking up experience at the minute. Yeah, we are very careful with her, as you see. Uh, we don't throw her uh, in all kinds of situations that she cannot handle yet. Uh, you've seen yesterday how difficult it is and under these these pressures for her, but also she's, she's so talented and you can only grow by uh, meeting those pressures. So we take the opportunity and we let the players uh, grow. Um, we had six uh, debutants this year only, um, let alone the years before. So I think this team is just growing and growing and growing, getting better and better and better. Uh, the youth uh, pathway is better. Uh, we get them in earlier in the elite centers. The Development officer doing a fantastic uh, job um, in in nourishing them. Tom Elms is the one who is keeping everything together at uh, Women's National League and and taking care of the home based players and the clubs. Um, it is a good structure, uh, and I think that um, with very hard work, uh, it always pays off, and you will always make step forward uh, together. But the rate of development that we see now is something that we could only dream of. And let's embrace it, everybody. Uh, step up uh, a level. Um, and um, with that, we also get all those uh, major let's uh, major steps forward for the club and for the league um, that will come in. I'm sure that that will come in. Absolutely. Well, listen, Vera, appreciate your time. I know you've had a, you've had a busy uh, number of days over there in uh, Mallorca and... Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of Irish fans listening who are still looking for their tickets and their travel itineraries and details for, for, the, for next summer's World Cup. So congrats on what was a great 2022 and, and here's open for, for some great things over the next uh, 12 months or so. Thank you so much for having me. Great stuff, Vera Powder. Thanks a million. The Republic of Ireland Women's National Team Manager. Excitement, Kathleen. I mean, we can... It's we can, building. It's, it's building. It is. Let's just say the build-up is here uh, already. Very much so. Are like, you, even last night watching the game, I know it was a bit of a dead rubber match. It wasn't all that exciting. Yeah. But I was kind of looking at the players and I was like, oh, he's going to be in the World Cup squad. <laughs> What's going to be happening? Yeah, it's starting already. Googling um, flights to Australia constantly. You're, obviously, you're, you have, you're, going, you're going over, are you? Yeah. I, yeah. You'll find a way. I will find a way some way or another. I mean, I can't. Not like I've spent the last year specifically talking about this team, and even just before that, it's just so momentous. Um, I wish it was, I do wish it was a bit closer. Um, but what other excuse will I ever have to go to Australia <laughs> and see women play football? I mean, it's incredible. Um, no, I am very, very excited. And like, because I covered the Euros this summer, and that was like my first experience of like a proper big football tournament, yeah. 
and just the atmosphere is so much nicer than going to some of the men's games where like I struggle sometimes with that because I feel if I just want to go to a game by myself or like I always feel like I have to bring someone with me or like bring mm. a, a lad with me particularly yeah. and I just never get that around women's football and it's just nice to go and concentrate on the football and not have to think about anything else so. that's true and the the kickoff times if I'm right in saying for Ireland's group games they're relatively okay for an Irish yeah, audience, aren't they? They're not the worst. I think we're like nine ten and like one o'clock mostly. Okay, like in the morning. So nine a.m. is the earliest. We, we know be. there could have been like a three o'clock in the morning kickoff right, if right. we wanted, but for us, <laughs> we're fine. So. We're lucky enough. I was at one stage when I was like not sure if I was going to be able to get to go or not, and thinking about the job we have here, where you know most shows start around six, seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to have to flip my lifetime table oh. and put my like work day at the end of my actual day and just spend my whole night watching football. Yeah, which isn't the worst way to spend a night either. You'd be wrecked, though. You'd yeah, be wrecked. You'd be sleeping ch- during the day, no doubt. Uh, someone has commented, John. Where the hell is Stephen Kisby Green? He backed South Africa to beat Ireland and he hasn't been on the show since the game. That's a very, very fair point. Not only has he not been on the show, I haven't seen him since around the office. I haven't seen him. Stephen, He's disappeared. Stephen, where are you? Stephen Kisby Green, this is a call out. Show your face once more. because uh, It'll yeah, be was, nice, we promise. Yeah, it would be nice. There Look, was a, a running joke in the office last week because every game that he went to, the team he wanted to win lost. So we're putting together a fund to send him to the World Cup next year so that he can go to Ireland, South Africa. And just, right. you know, just be the lucky charm for yeah, Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Just make sure for us that, that was <laughs> we t- get the win. Yeah, because the South African cricketers lost in the T20 World Cup and the rugby team just couldn't couldn't buy a win against Ireland or Munster. Yeah, he was down at Munster as well. So. Jesus. Poor man. He's had, yeah, he's had a tough time of it. Uh, it's a t- tough time of it. Yeah. Just looking at some of the... Like, <laughs> The back pages this this morning, like angry United talk to lawyer over Ronaldo. Close friend Ferdinand can't defend interview. I mean, when Rio Ferdinand is going after him as well. Yeah, you know things are not good. This is actually something I just saw on ESPN there, where you're talking to Vera Powell that uh, Rob Dawson has a piece saying that Eric Ten Hag has had a meeting with the hierarchy in United and said that Cristiano Ronaldo should not play for the club again. Which is interesting because now it's putting it on the club as well. Who do they back? Do they back Ronaldo? They back Ten Hag. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he had a meeting with co-chairman Joel Glazer, chief executive Richard Arnold, and football director John Mercia on Monday to discuss the fallout. They're, as the other article said, they're talking to lawyers now and taking legal advice about how best to deal with it. Sources have told ESPN a number of senior players are furious at the timing of the outburst with parts of the interview first made public just hours after Garnacho had scored a stoppage time winner. He, sources have also said that Ten Hag is still of the opinion that a fit and motivated Ronaldo can help his team during the second half of the season when United hope to be challenging in four competitions, but he has told club bosses that he is not willing to sacrifice unity within the squad to accommodate him yeah. and is prepared to see him leave even if there isn't a replacement. And I, I think there's no question that the club will take the, 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 the line of Ten Hag and whatever he wants will go because that's the thing as well. You're, you're, like People like Richard Arnold and John Murdo who you mentioned, they're the people who Ronaldo was pointing finger yeah. at. He was talking about the direct sporting director and the chairman and all the rest and it is Arnold and Murto who Ronaldo is sticking the two fingers up to here. The Glazers got a little bit of in the neck as well, but the Glazers he doesn't have to deal with. He probably has to communicate with <coughs> with Murto and and and, and um, Arnold and see these lads around Carrington and around Old Trafford plenty. So I mean, they they must be seething. It's no wonder Surely. that they're talking about legal advice and stuff as well, because in terms of contract, like has he has he gone beyond the bounds of his contract? Who knows? 
that'll all come out in, in the wash. I feel like he's definitely frustrated his contract because he's made it a stage where like he can't work untenable. at United. Yeah, like it's yeah. Com- untenable for him to work there. I mean, Jesus. It's just, it, gets, it gets more bizarre the more you see and I, we'll obviously have to watch and see the, the full interview and see what comes out of it. Um, but Piers Morgan's just licking his lips at all this. This is just the publicity he's getting from it. But Ronaldo, I mean... For anyone who hasn't seen, we spoke about it at the top of the show, for anyone who hasn't seen the Bruno Fernandes, Cristiano Ronaldo handshake, as they're coming back into the, the Portuguese camp last night, I assume it was, please have a look. It is fantastic. and It's, it's hard thing. to avoid this morning, in fairness, if you're yeah, on any everywhere. form of social media. It's literally everywhere. I think it's up on like a couple of million views now. Yeah, Jesus. Like, Bruno Fernandes... Shane's going to go to you to have a lie down after this it's, conversation. It's madness. It, like... I was at Villa Park last week and, and Ronaldo's in the team and you're, you're kind of you've forgot, forgotten about the Tottenham stuff at that stage you're like well kid it's, it's kind of all it's all over with he's handled the captain's armband for games as well and it's all forgotten about but um, the fact that he's come out and done this is I, I don't know how he can have the 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 discipline to talk about loyalty how can you talk about loyalty when you go behind the club's back doing an interview with Piers Morgan that you know is going to come out and cause complete Mm-hmm. chaos that's the thing he knew this was going to cause chaos and, and Piers Morgan said it himself that's nearly what he's what he's intending here and the timing of it is, is no coincidence he's doing this on purpose yeah. when he's off to, to, to Portugal now if he if he does happen to be I think Portugal player a friendly this week uh, in the window before the, uh, in the World Cup warm up, warm up match and if Ronaldo is man of the match there's of course the post-match interview with the man of the match as there usually is very interested to see if he speaks Yeah, um, but it is also the right sort of chaos because it's not sort of chaos where he's going to lose sponsorship over this or no. he's going to lose any brand deals you know it's it's not great what he said and it's disrespectful and it's everything else but it doesn't really put his income massively well his United income yeah but I don't even think it's really about that for him anymore to be fair just the headlines are so so like mm. you have betrayed us United want Ronaldo sacked for breach of club rules after a savage TV interview. That's the thing. Like, what what are the club rules? We don't really know. Um, I'd assume going behind the back and, and doing an interview like that is not is not within the club's remit or the rules. A lot of time, don't they have like fines for that sort of stuff? Yeah, but, like, but I don't like this. Is probably a step above what many people have it done is. before. It's it is the type of thing that he, he almost can't play for the club again. Like if he if he was to play, it's it's at the point now where if he was to play at Old Trafford again. What is the fans' uh, reaction going to be like? Love to know. Like, I, I, I don't think the fans would appreciate this whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so, we'll be very interested to see. I think. Well, be- they'd have to do a massive PR campaign, and it would have to involve United hierarchy and Ten Hag and Ronaldo all sitting down and be like, "Yeah, we're all buddies now. We've sorted it out behind yeah. closed doors." He said he's sorry. We said we're sorry. Move on. Yeah. Which I just don't see happening. No, can't see it happening. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it across across uh, OTBM during the week. Uh, it is nine twenty nine a.m. on this Tuesday morning. Uh, OTBM brought to you live with uh, Gillette in association with Movember. Effort to shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com that is all we have time for on this morning's show if you missed any of it of course you can get the podcasts in uh, in all the usual places the OTB Sports app and the Spotify and Go Loud um, and of course the YouTube videos will be up in the usual spot youtube.com forward slash off the ball back tomorrow from half past seven in the morning once again Jimmy Heaslip will be joining us to look ahead to Ireland's clash with Australia the ex-jockey turned nutritionist Evan Daly will be with us as well plus plenty more besides enjoy we'll chat you tomorrow good luck OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo